Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Nascendo non lasciarmi solo Se tu te ne vai io muoio Esce il primo raggio E tu vai, si tu vai via da me That song was called Barbara Steele. It's by a group called Tony Tuono and the Black Roosters. It's from their 2018 album, Bielsa Boogie. And that's available on Apple Music. It's kind of a swinging, maybe a little bit of 60s rockabilly type song. I think it's I, a- yeah, I was getting a little bit of a Elvis rockabilly vibe. As we were talking before we hit record, you find the most obscure yet upbeat tunes to kick off each episode, and, and I absolutely love it. And mostly because when I go back and listen to these with Carla, her head usually explodes like, where does he find these songs? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. He finds them somewhere. But I said, that's what makes the, the start of the episode. It gets everybody upbeat and ready to go for whatever topic we have. And I think this little game is about done where, why are we playing that? It's kind of become obvious now, but this one is especially obvious that a song called Barbara Steele would be because... We are covering three films and filling in a little bit about the career of Barbara Steele. December is actually her birth month. She was born December 29th, 1937, and she will be turning 83 this year, and she is still with us. So let's get to it. Let's call this meeting to order. Welcome to episode 52. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Let's get right to gold gold business. Gold business. The gold gold standard. Let's get to old business. We have several new members of the Facebook group page today. So that is great. Welcome to all of these appreciated listeners and participants on the Facebook group page, Martin Stone, Tennessee, Hennessy, I believe. I mistyped it. Martin Stone, Hennessy. I remember that because Hennessy, Oklahoma was 20 miles from Enid and Martin Stone, Hennessy. Steve Beach. I think we're going to hear from him a little bit later. We are. Letitia Serrato, Robert Meyer, and John Ginocchio. It has been a very busy month, so welcome one and all. We have some feedback, I believe, also. And Richard, you're going to take care of it this month. Old man glasses on here. Yes. We didn't, you know, get any voicemail or or emails, but we had some really good discussion happening over at the Facebook group page, which absolutely works just as well, I think. Steve Beach had a very long uh, message, but I want to read some of it here because he really was kind of talking about where he comes from as as a monster kid. And I think that's important. I mean, whenever 
I, I encourage every new member to do that. And even some of the new ones that, you know, if you've been with us the last few months, post on Facebook, Let, let's, let's start a conversation. You know, what, uh, what got you to become a monster kid? What's your earliest, you know, film experiences? I think that'd be a fun conversation to have. He says, if he remembers correctly, the first horror film he ever saw was a BBC showing of Quatermass in the Pit, which was, uh, he was allowed to stay up by his parents because it aired at 9.25 p.m. on a Friday night. Uh, He was about eight years old at the time. And uh, this followed after much pleading with them, allowing me to stay up for a late night showing of Frankenstein must be destroyed. So that's pretty cool that, you know, you're, you're getting two classic Hammer films as your introduction into to monster movies. Ah, but then, then he goes on to say that uh, these films, even if I was a little too young to appreciate the Baron's nastier side, as depicted in the later film, thrilled me and I loved them. They seemed to be a natural extension of a TV program that I had long been addicted to, Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Doctor Who is one of my earliest TV memories. I vividly remember being petrified by the Yeti stalking the London Underground, pursued by Patrick Troughton's second doctor, and hiding behind the sofa during a particularly frightening scene with my elder sister. I was introduced to the Universal Horror Cycle a little later when BBC Two started a series showing a classic black and white horror film followed by a more modern color effort each Saturday night. The Universal films were frequently shown out of sequence, but I love them nonetheless. As an English member of the club, can I set the record straight on the correct pronunciation of Michael Goff's surname. In this case, Goff is pronounced Goff. He goes into an explanation of it. There are exceptions, and he goes on to kind of talk about different exceptions in in regards to uh, various towns in in, uh, different sections of England, of how words are pronounced differently. Much like here in the U.S., we have this vast country where you, you might have a southern accent, you might have a northern accent. He goes on to, to talk about that. An interesting quote here, he said, as George Bernard Shaw once said, Britain and the U.S. are two nations separated by a common language, and I think this proves it. Anyway, keep up the good work with the club and podcast. Regards, Steve Beach. Steve is apparently a member from across the pond. Yeah, fantastic stuff there, Steve. Thanks for sharing that with the group. And as we said, you know, welcome to all the new members and let's hear from everyone, you know, as far as what got you in. Jeff and I talked about it, you know, various times over the years, but we want to hear from you. Let us know what what got you into it, especially, I love it. I love the fact that we're hearing kind of a different perspective, hearing about it from England, because obviously, you know, he watched Doctor Who when it was first on the air, because he's talking about, you know, 1960s Patrick Troughton era. And that particular story that he was referring to is called The Web of Fear. Actually, in the last couple of weeks, they just announced that this is one of the episodes that was lost. And they found five of the six episodes down in Africa several years ago. Well, they actually found all six. But when they were transferring the film across different borders in Africa, someone stole one of the films. And so uh, they just announced a couple of weeks ago that they are going to animate the last uh, missing episode. It's been released on, on DVD already as a what we call a telesnap reconstruction, but they are going to animate the episode proper sometime in 2021. 
I thought that was interesting timing. I'm glad uh, to hear about the pronunciation. You know, I, I remember that specifically because I, I've heard on other podcasts uncertainty about it, and I was so sure I had it. I remember specifically saying guff, thinking that it is like tough, T-O-U-G-H, guff, G-O-U-G-H. Glad to know it's like <coughs> cough, yeah. cough. I, I, I'm hoping I read much. that correctly. <laughs> Longtime member uh, Hines had some comments on our last episode. Okay, he says, a nice episode. I'm with you on the music. I've got the fortune of having watched Nosferatu and Dr. Caligari originally with such brilliant scores in the 80s on TV that I'll never be able to enjoy, never be able of enjoying both with different music, especially Nosferatu got a brilliant score on Swizz TV in 88. So again, he's from Europe, so he's giving us a different perspective. It featured rearranged music from Johann Sebastian Bach, which elevates the story to a passion play. Fortunately, I got both taped on VHS. Unfortunately, they are not available elsewhere. The James Bernard version was interesting, but it just doesn't fit for me. I have to admit that you're right on some vague plot points in the Golem. It seems that the rabbi isn't entirely sure what he wants to achieve with the creature as he seems to just follow astrological predictions and mystical suggestions. He seems more like a tool for powers that drive him. On the demon Astaroth, he appears in a 17th century book named, and I'm going to butcher the name, so I apologize, the Book of Abramelin, about a medieval Jew getting caught in Kabbalistic magic. It was popular under occultists for rites and spells. He seems to be derived from antique godhood, so there is a connection. Nothing of that can take away the awesomeness of the movie, the sets, and the compositions. He says he never heard of the 36 version, something he has to seek out. Keep on the good work, by the way. The guy that Mary Philbin didn't, wasn't allowed to marry was agent producer Paul Coner, who later married Dracula actress Lupita Tovar. Thank you, Hines, for your comments in the last episode. We got some other comments and some uh, good response from last week's uh, last month's episode. Uh, as always, we encourage people to uh, let us know your feedback, comments in the last episode, comments on 20 episodes ago. We want to hear from you. And how would we do that, Jeff? Well, one of the ways, although we don't have an example of it this week, is to call our special hotline and leave a voicemail. That number would be 616-649-2582. Or easily remembered as 616-649-CLUB. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, just what I ex- have come to expect. I know. I know. Myself. All right. All right. Set me up again. Set me up again. All right. All right. 816-649-2582, which is also 616-649-CLUB. Nice. All right. Bravo. Also, you can email classichorrors.club at gmail.com if you prefer to record a message and send it, or if you want to do a written email, we can read that. And you know what? We didn't even remind people of our video companion. If you are really an overachiever, you could send us a short video, and we will post it on our YouTube companion show, which is found on our YouTube channel. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll give another shout out because, of course, I hadn't seen the end results when we did the last episode. You knocked it out of the park <laughs> with last month's. It was so fun. For those of you who haven't seen it, shame on you. You need to go to YouTube. Essentially, if you do 
an episode on silent films, it's only appropriate that the YouTube companion video is silent as well. Fantastic job on that. I thought that was very, very cool. Carla thought that was cool as well. I showed her that and she thought that was really interesting. Good job. Oh, thanks. That's so much fun. I'm really enjoying that. Jeff is the mastermind behind the technical stuff on the show. I just show up. I'm the pretty face, you know, and I throw out some random side rants. So you keep saying that, but yet I'm also the one responsible when there are bad quality recordings and uh, mistakes and things like that. So got to take some good with the bad. You're the engineer of the program. So, you know, I, I could show up. But if we weren't recording, nobody would hear what I was saying. That's profound. Isn't it, though? It's like a tree <laughs> falling in the woods. Would exactly. If we record a podcast in the woods, would it's, anyone Hey, that? it's it's <laughs> early Sunday morning, and yes. I'm not, other than a few drinks of tea here. Yeah, oh, I have my awesome. coffee and my Frankenstein mug, uh, which is going to need a refill soon. Let's dig into the life and career of one Barbara Steele. Uh, as you mentioned, Richard, her birthday is December 29th. She was born in 1937 in Birkenhead, Cheshire, England. On her upcoming birthday, she will be, like you said, 83 years old. As a young woman in England, she studied art at the Chelsea Art School and even for a time in Paris at the Sorbonne. She was going to be a painter. But in 1957, she joined a repertory company and began acting. She appeared in several British TV shows And her first official movie was something called Bachelor of Hearts in 1958. 21 years old, starting her acting career. She did make her American TV debut in 1960 on a show called Adventures in Paradise. Are you familiar with that show at all? I am not. I'm thinking of another show. I don't know what. Makes me think of like shows like Hawaiian Eye. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Now, you might be able to straighten this out. I'm a little unsure of her her trips to the United States and, you know, back. Obviously, she's in the States at this point if she's making an an American television show. She was supposed to be in, speaking of Elvis Presley, the movie called Flaming Star in 1960. But she was replaced by Barbara Eden. And the interesting, the interesting thing, it's interesting to nobody but me, but I've seen one Elvis Presley movie in my life, and it's Flaming Star. And I remember distinctly watching it at my grandparents' house, Granddad and Nana, on probably a Friday night when I was spending the night with them, and it was on TV. And number one, I didn't want to watch an Elvis Presley movie. Number two, I didn't want to watch a Western. But if I recall, that was a really good movie, or I enjoyed it, at least at the time. Just want to throw that out there. I don't remember Barbara Eden in it, and I certainly wouldn't have known at that time if Barbara Steele was supposed to be in it. Still in the States, obviously, 1961, she appeared in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. If you're familiar with that series, it was an episode called Beta Delta Gamma. Maybe she played a sorority girl? I don't know. Maybe. Could be. At this time, we're about in the late 50s, so she's uh, 20, still, you know, early 20s, She had a contract with the Rank Organization, which would be in England. So again, I'm not clear on what she's doing in the States and all of that, but they sold her contract to 20th Century Fox. And I think you're going to speak to this later on. But so obviously starting out in England, going to the United States, doing some things here and there, not really breaking out yet. I think Hollywood maybe had a different idea in mind for what they wanted to do with her. But as luck would have it, there was a writer's strike. And this sort of released her from her obligations, and she booked it out of there to Italy. 
she did not like her time in Hollywood because they were trying to make her into something she was not. Barbara Steele is, is, you know, a, you know, stunning visage uh, of an actress. She, she's got a very unique look with her, I would say very European features. I mean, she, she's dark haired, she's tall, which I mean, you obviously can't tell that on screen, you know, but she, she was a taller actress and kind of a stark, harsh look in some ways, definitely not your typical bubbly Hollywood actress persona, but that's what they wanted to kind of squeeze her into that mold. They wanted her to be blonde she was told she was too tall, so she had to wear flats. She says, which when every other you know woman around you is wearing heels, she says, that's just not the thing. Plus, you know, there's galas and parties and things like that. You know, you, you kind of wear high heels. That was a, it was an image, but she couldn't because she was too tall. She wanted a, a, a cooler old car and they were told, what are you doing? You know, you've got to have the flashy new model because you've got a persona to 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 keep up. She hated that. She she did not care for any of that. And as you said, when she left and fled to Italy, and a couple of interviews that I've seen, she just she loved Italy. She fell in love with Italy. She felt welcomed. She felt like almost like one of us, you know, like the freaks thing. Oh, one of us, one of us. She was embraced and, and embraced Italy. And that's where she really thrived. And in fact, as we go on with her career, there comes a point where she leaves Italy because of a change of life. And she said, that's the biggest mistake, biggest regret is ever leaving Italy. I don't think it's that she dislikes the United States or living in the US, but it was what the Hollywood spin on things was definitely not Barbara Steele's style, not something she embraced. And so at this point, she she's not really known for much. She's doing these little bit parts and, and this big opportunity in Flaming Star because of an argument that she had with the director. She leaves, depending on which version you hear, whether she walked off or she was kicked off, she was already kind of getting a reputation for being a little bit difficult to deal with. She was kind of like headstrong. She had an idea what she wanted and that was going to be her way. And, and she would have no problem butting heads with directors or producers. And so depending on who you talk to, there's going to be two sides to every story. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, which you probably have to get from a third party. But nonetheless, her move to Italy was, was a huge uh, moment and, and opened her up for, for the biggest part of her, of her career, which is where you were headed. Exactly. Mario Bava, famed Italian director was making Black Sunday and he needed some British cast members because he wanted it to be more comparable to Dracula. And so he wanted to put some British people in there. Therefore, he hired Barbara Steele and this is the movie that made her a star. I revisited that this past week and introduced Carla to it and she loved it. Carla's not a fan of some of the other Barbara Steele movies. In fact, she tapped out on some of them. But this one, I said, you got to watch this one. I said, you'll like this one. And she really did. Uh, it is, it's a classic. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend uh, that if you want to dive into some Barbara Steele films, 
Black Sunday needs to be at the top of the list above even the three films we're going to talk about. And certainly far, far above the last film we're going to cover. (laughs) Spoiler alert, but Black Sunday is a classic and it's got a great version. It's out on, I think Kino Lorber is the one that put it out on on Blu-ray. A little shy on on extras. I think that's the one problem I have with with Kino Lorber is that they really don't put a lot of extras on their Blu-rays. You get a great picture the image is probably never going to be better, but they really don't really throw a lot of extra stuff like some others, like as we'll talk about the the Severin Blu-ray that actually was Nightmare Castle, but Terror Creatures from the Grave is one of the extras on there. There's a lot on that Blu-ray. It's a little pricier now than when I paid. I paid like 15 bucks for it. Nonetheless, Black Sunday, highly recommend it. And here again, I'm confused. And, you know, these movies come out on certain years. You look at release dates. You're not really sure when they're made. So her next movie was Pit and the Pendulum with Roger Corman and Vincent Price. That was actually made in the United States. So I don't know if she filmed that before Black Sunday or if she flew back and forth. Nevertheless, in 1961, Pit and the Pendulum. Interesting that her voice was actually dubbed in that. So we do not hear Barbara Steele's voice in Pit and the Pendulum. It's dubbed in Black Sunday as well. Oh, so, um, well, that and that's something we may talk about. It's I think dubbed in depending if you watch subtitled or dubbed version. It's dubbed in almost everything we watch. It's, that's true. Yeah, that that is true. Yeah, but you would think that in Pit and the Pendulum that they would have used a real voice since it was an American production. That's not always the case, and maybe for maybe for whatever reason they felt her voice wasn't right. She doesn't have a huge role in that movie, but um, actually just revisited that during uh, October because it's on one of the Vincent Price collections. I think it's on Vincent Price collection one, the one that just got re-released. Beautiful picture, fantastic movie. She's got a pivotal role in that. I mean, she she's in the climax of the film. I'm not going to tell you how. She's not in a lot of it. Her screen time definitely at the end is quite impactful. And that's a comment I was going to make. And of course, we're only sampling three. I know you watched a lot more than me, but she she's known for these movies, for this Italian period in her life, for being a horror star. Her roles aren't always that big, especially. I mean, she's gone from a lot of uh, the last movie that we watched. Yeah, isn't necessarily the focus or the main character in a lot of these movies. Kind of depends on one of the films we didn't cover. And I will talk about it when we get to this. We're almost to it, I think. The Long Hair of Death, I think, is her best film, even better than Black Sunday. And she definitely is on on screen, you know, as a, in a full role in that one. But you're right. In some of these other films, I mean, she she isn't seen as, as much. Um, and especially in the last film, she, you know, for reasons because of contracts and stuff. I mean, she's, I wouldn't even, cons- she gets like top billing, but... I mean, she should have been like special guest star or something because she was not in it very much. In 1962, she answered an open casting call for none other than Federico Fellini. And she has a small but pivotal role in 1963's Eight and a Half. This is, to me, a turning point because we're going a, a big change from, you know, horror, Pit in the Pendulum, Black Sunday to Fellini. And she took 10 days off from the filming of that to make the horrible Dr. Hitchcock in 1962. One of those crossroads in life, you have to wonder if she had not have done that, you know, would her career as a, a horror star have continued or not? 
I did not see the horrible Dr. Hitchcock. I have it. I just ran out of time. I was trying to get all these Barbara Steele movies in. It was a combination of I didn't have time. I was kind of tapping out on on the theme. And because there's there's a similar theme of ghosts and vengeance. I have to admit, I was tapping out myself on it. I needed a I needed a break. And I'm like, well, and I ran out of time. I thought about maybe squeezing it in in the last couple of days, but didn't get it in. However, I, I do want to see it. I saw parts of it years ago and, and I did like what I saw. It's interesting to note that the first movie we're going to cover proper, The Ghost, has Hitchcock as the name in it. And sometimes The Ghost gets called a sequel to The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, but it is not. There's no no correlation, interrelation, nothing between the two. Uh, other than they oddly use the same name in back-to-back films. The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock does get generally good reviews. It's definitely something I want to watch sooner than later to kind of complete my my Barbara Steele run during this time period, especially that and, a, and another movie we'll mention uh, when it comes up. I, I It's harder to find and I kind of would like to see it. Yeah, I thought I had seen it and I remembered enjoying it. However, I did not rate it in, on my IMDb list. So I might, this period of time, the, the names, I mean, there's the awful Dr. Orloff, the horrible Dr. Hitchcock. I really can't keep them straight like I used to. So I may not have, have seen it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to comment on you, like tapping out, is you got to remember, we're looking at three films from the 60s that are from Italy. So we're talking about Euro horror here. And that is a different style. That's a different beast entirely. Yeah, there's a lot of repetition in themes and look, the gothic, you know, feel. And, and we get that in all these movies. I don't think that's specific to Barbara Steele. It's that no. Italy and at that time. But I, I kind of want to call that out because although we're focusing on her, let's think as we go through these of, you know, your horror. And for a lot of people, a little goes a long way. I, that, that's love a very it. good point. Yeah, I, Euro horror is something I, I'm only recently kind of turning around on. I would get bits and pieces of it over the years. In fact, you know, I I'd sometimes these movies would pop up on creature features back up in, in the you know late 70s, early 80s when I would watch uh, early 80s when that happened on Channel 41 with Cremation Mortem. You'd occasionally throw in this stuff. That was my always my early experience with it. But I found that I didn't usually gravitate towards Euro horror. However, in recent years, as I've made my way through, you know, universal films and other films and hammer films, and you want to discover new things, I revisit the Euro horror. And it's kind of like Paul Nashi. I took me years to finally decide that I, I, I kind of dig Paul Nashi, you know, I, and I'm enjoying discovering these new Nashi films. However, you know, I can't really do like two Nashi films back to back. One, I'm good. I can watch another one the next night, but a double feature of Nashi, I've tried it. And I have to admit, you know, and I know if Rod Barnett's listening, he's probably having a stroke right now. But for me, it's like, I've got to take it in small doses for me to enjoy it. And, and I think that was my problem is I was like cramming all these films in with similar themes. And I'm like, didn't I just see this in the last movie? You know, it's like, you know, somebody, you know, screwed somebody over and they're coming back as a ghost. And not to say that they're not good, but for me, that that's kind of where I was, I was at. You're right. There's, there's a style. I love the Gothic horror style. 
definitely missed it when we get to the last film we're going to cover. I was like, gosh, I wish there was a vengeful ghost in a gothic horror setting. <laughs> when you watch them a bunch together, you kind of blend together a little bit. So as you said, awful Dr. Orloff, horrible Dr. Hitchcock, they all kind of, yeah, intertwine a little bit after a period of time. Your horror, I, I love, but it's got to be like on a chilly day. It's got to be cloudy. I, if it's a sunny, bright day, I'm not going to be inclined to watch your horror. It's one where just, I don't know, I guess it's all about atmosphere, really, in, in some ways, and yeah. puts you in a mood, and it just helps if you've got that atmosphere around you. The same for me. It's like there's some films I can you can always plug in, right, and I'm going to gravitate towards. It's kind of like my love for Star Trek, for example. If I'm channel surfing, you know, and it's, and it's on Pluto TV or something, yeah, I can sit down and bam, I'm into it. But other things I've got to be in the mood for, you know, I've got to like, I can't just sit down and settle into it. I can always sit down and settle into a, a universal horror film. You know, that that's just kind of like, you know, a warm blanket, which I'll wear on a hot summer day. If it's on, I don't care. Yeah. But Euro horror is something I've got to be kind of, it's like silent films. I, I, I love silent films, but I have to be, in the mode, you know, or a film that was subtitles, which is always my preference for foreign films. I've got to be in the mood to want to sit there, stay focused on what's happening on the screen and reading the subtitles. It requires, it requires a rested mind uh, ready to, to dive into it. You know, if you're just wanting to veg out, yeah, a foreign film with subtitles is not a go-to for me. And in a way, we've talked about this many times, I usually prefer subtitles, but in a way, these Euro horror films, the dubbing is part of it. That, you know, I've seen many more of them dubbed than I have subtitled, just because that's what you get usually if a lot of these might be public domain or you see them in states that aren't necessarily super well produced. That adds to it to me. I sort of, this is the exception where I sort of like the dubbing versus a subtitle. And I meant to ask you, did you watch any of these three subtitled? For some reason, I didn't even think about checking out that option. I think I did by the time we got to uh, the last movie, and then I did not see that there was an option for subtitles. None, none of these three, no, no. Uh, and I'm trying to think now, and I saw so many of them. I'm trying to think of, like, I watched Long Hair of Death. I'm not sure that was subtitled, though they all kind of blend together at the moment. Most of these, I think were, were dubbed. Yeah. I, I know if any of them long hair of death would have been the only one that would have had subtitles. And I'm not sure that it did. Hmm. Uh, I'm drawing a total blank. Other than that, it they Black were all Sunday? black Sunday was surely that's got subtitles. Yeah. I'm drawing a blank on that now too. I'm trying to visualize <laughs> Barbara Steele, black and white movie. Oh, and then it just all of a sudden, yeah, saw too many films in a short amount of time. Uh, most of them, though, were dubbed. Okay. No, I'm pretty sure I, Black Sunday was not, did not have subtitles because mm. I'm pretty sure that, that that was, I'm pretty sure of what I saw was dubbed. Maybe it did have the option and I didn't check. Maybe I missed out. I don't know. Why don't we take a break and we'll come back and dig in deep to our first movie, The Ghost from 1963. My Frankenstein mug is empty Uh, I think I need to fill it. So we'll be right back.
carry you to the depths of hell's horror. They played with the burning fires of illicit passions while he dallied with the devil himself. Be quick, be quick, give me the antidote. Is he alive or dead? Is he a corpse or the ghost? From beyond the veil he speaks and rides unseen to mark this house with the black sign of death. They knew the terror of fear. Stop it! frenzy of limitlessly indulging their lusts until the ghost turned their love into the violence of avaricious hate. don't go well for Margaret Hitchcock when she and her lover, Charles, plot to murder her paralyzed husband, John. First of all, John leaves his money and jewels to the church. Then he's buried with the key to the safe in which they're stored. That's only where the nightmare begins for Margaret. Then she's visited by the ghost. Ghost was released in Italy March 30th, 1963. Didn't hit the States until 1965. It premiered in Dallas on February 18th. What did you think of The Ghost, Rich? Of the three films coming right out of the gate, I'm going to say it is my favorite of the three films. I, I love the style of it, and I will say that this is a film... I hope gets a formal Blu-ray release at some point. I, I want to see a better print, maybe subtitled, but at least a better print of it. What what I saw wasn't bad. It was the Sinister Cinema version, which you actually shared with me. So compared to some other public domain prints out there, I mean, it's it certainly is better than others. It's a film that, gosh, I just, I feel like there, there's something, you know, like the image could pop and, and would enhance the overall experience for me. I thought the movie was a little long. I liked the story. I liked the gothic feel to it. It does kind of, the the, the opening part of the film is a little a little odd almost, because, I mean, it doesn't it start with a seance or something. That's yes, going it, on. yes. Yeah, it just kind of like, bam, it starts, and then it changes abruptly. And almost, if you ever see some of those films from the um, late 50s, early 60s, where... American films, when they were released for, for television, they have like like a snippet of the film in the very beginning, you know, like a highlight. And then it like then it goes into the opening credits and then you end up seeing that same snippet later on again. I kind of feel like that's almost like I was like, Is this what's happening here. It just it threw me off. I think the thing about that is you don't really know at that point what it is. You don't know that it's a seance. And I think somebody's tied to a chair and they're like, let's untie them. And 
it's just not real clear what's going on. So yeah, you're was, starting yeah. off very unsettled. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of like, then the next scene doesn't really have anything to do with it almost. It's kind of like, again, I felt like I'm like watching a highlight or something. Um, and I, I could only assume that maybe that is the way the film starts. Then again, I'm wondering if if that's the Americanized version of it. I could not find much trivia on this film as I was doing research. So if it's, if there was a, you know, a source for trivia on it out there, I couldn't find it. Did you have any luck finding any? any I sure didn't. The only thing I had was the Dr. Hitchcock comment that it's not a sequel. And even though the names were the same. Yeah. it. it I mean, it, the director, Ricardo Freda, he shot Kaltiki, the immortal monster, which I love. That's about it for me. He also did Horrible Dr. Hitchcock and Lust of the Vampire, which is a film that I'm not, I, I was looking at the titles, like that title sounds familiar, but I'm not sure that that's the same version of, of what I've thought. I don't think so. Hammer has Lust for the Vampire. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. I knew there was something, Lust, Vampire, you know. So no, I haven't seen Lust of the Vampire. And of course, let's. I, we should mention, right? We mentioned Ricardo Freda. So many of these writers and directors will have Americanized names. If you watch this and you're like, well, I didn't see Ricardo Freda's name up there. I saw Robert Hampton. Well, that was his Americanized name. You know, there was this thought at the time, well, like Americans are too dumb apparently to read Italian. So let's slap an American name on there. Something obviously that would never happen today. I mean, if you're a a writer, director, you're going to keep your name on it. And there's no need for Americanized names. At least I don't think they do that that anymore. Maybe they do. I know people will sometimes use pseudonyms and such. But yeah, I, I thought that when you look at this, like the Americanized names, it gets confusing. And there's a story that I'm going to tell later where a name gets a, attached to a film. And it was actually the name of a producer because the director didn't want to be associated with it. And it's caused a lot of confusion over the years as to like who really directed the film, but I'll talk about that later. But nonetheless, Ricardo Freire also was one of the two writers for this film. The other being an, an Oreste Biancoli, better known as Robert Davidson, <laughs> um, who did a, uh, a film called the witch's curse, which I, I kept seeing pop up a few times. I know I'm going to struggle with pronunciation. Uh, was it Makiste? One of the Peplum characters, Makiste, I know, is like a historical character. Frank Schildner talks about uh, Makiste. Oh, I think right. they did a review of that on one of the Monster Kid radio episodes. So nonetheless, Witch's Curse is the one film that I it kind of stood out. Another thing that as we started diving into the research of these films, a lot of these you know Italian directors and writers and stars there's a slew of Italian films that I have no idea what they are. I'll look for like films, other popular films that they did, but there's just a lot of other films. And it just kind of reminds me of, there's so many films here in the US, right? It's just like, you never have a chance to see all the films that you want to see. We all have these long lists of horror films. And if you're like me that also enjoys other genres, you know, there's always a long list of like classic silent films that I want to see. And then you look at, at a Euro horror film and then you see these long lists of Italian films and you realize it's like, 
it's just a drop in the bucket and you're never, ever, ever going to see all the films that you want to see. But there's so many foreign films and many of them are, are kind of lost, right? They're, they're sitting in, in archives that, you know, American audiences haven't even been exposed to them and may never be exposed to them. And there could be some really good horror films in there, you know, that I, I can't even recognize the title of. The Ghost or Los Petro, butchering that name, I'm sure, is a film that I wish we could see the Italian, original Italian cut of. I think it'd be, it would enhance my experience. The other thing, I tend to think of Italian films as like a studio, like in Hollywood as a studio. But you look at the number of films and the different genres. I mean, spaghetti Westerns were huge, you know, so there's all kinds of people making films over there. It's not just a, you know, chronological list of of movies. There's so many different genres that you see a handful of films for, then there's like 50 more films that we'll never get a chance to see. And that's kind of like, you know, going back to Rod Barnett and the Nashi cast, when he started that, he was having to really almost dumpster dive, right? For, for copies of Nashi films and getting VHS copies with no subtitles and no dubbing. And here we are now celebrating these Nashi films, finally getting Blu-ray releases that are still just a drop in a bucket of, of what he did. Every time a new Nashi film gets released, we're celebrating it because it's like something that even 10 years ago just wasn't happening with, with great regularity. So there's still hope. Someday the ghost, Los Spectro, may may get found and may get released and enhance my my experience with it. I enjoyed it, though. I, I did. I, Barbara Steele plays the character of Margaret Hitchcock. Leonard G. Elliott, or again, a lot of these have different names. Elio Jota, continue my butchering of names, plays her husband, Dr. John Hitchcock. Peter Baldwin plays her... Uh, Lover, Dr. Charles Livingston. Spoiler alert. No. Was it? (laughs) Yes. Spoiler alert. No, not. It's her. It's the doctor. He actually did a lot of stuff. Uh, I was surprised to see how well he was actually very prolific in Hollywood. He was in Stalag 17, The Space Children. I Married a Monster from Outer Space. He was in The Outer Limits. He was also a very well-known television director on into the 80s and beyond, actually, he did things like Blossom, The Wonder Years, New Heart, The Love Boat, The Brady Bunch. Yeah, he, he had a, a, a long career in Hollywood. And then you had Harriet Meaden or Meaden playing, also known as Harriet White, playing housekeeper Catherine Wood. Now, she also played Martha, the maid, in the horrible Dr. Hitchcock which would probably add to, if you see both films back to back, well, there's the Hitchcocks and the maid is the same. It's the same movie. Yeah, that that probably adds to the confusion. She was actually in uh, other movies like Black Sabbath, The Whip and the Body, Death Race 2000. She was even in The Terminator. I believe it was her. She continued to act in in like uh, American films. She played an elderly lady in an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. When's the last time we mentioned the Fresh Prince on the Classic Horrors Club? So yeah, some of these you know faces you know you you will as you watch more Euro films you're going to get familiar with. You might also recognize them from some American films as well. I love this movie. Uh, 
even on its own, not just in comparing these three, I, I just, I, I loved it. If the overlords at YouTube don't somehow sense that we're sharing clips from it, there's going to be a lot of clips on our video companion because it's just beautiful. It's got everything Gothic. You need a big house, seances, skulls everywhere. And I want to come back to that in a minute. A creepy music box, wolves howling in the woods, storms, it's Scotland, 1910. It's black and white. It is just dripping with atmosphere. It's everything gothic all in one. And the camera work, the angles, the plot twists, it's just, I, I thought it was remarkable. I really, really was not expecting it from this movie. Well, in this movie, the the copyrights, I mean, it, it does pop up in the public domain from time to time, whether or not it's truly public domain is probably questionable. But I mean, I, I think from a clip perspective, I think you'll be fine on all three of these films because they all three tend to pop up on public domain sets at one point or another. It sounds like you really love the film. I um, did. You know, I have to admit, again, it's my favorite of the three films, but I didn't love it as much as you. And I think, for me, I, I got stuck with the fact that it felt like it meandered at one point midway through the film. I felt it was too long hmm. uh, at 100 minutes. I, not excessively so, but I mean, maybe just shave about 10 minutes off that running time. It just seemed to kind of get, for me, get stuck at about the halfway point. And, and I, it, I felt like it was kind of spinning and I just kind of wanted to give it a nudge to keep it going. But I, I, I do acknowledge it was a very atmospheric and, and, and beautifully filmed uh, movie, which is why, again, I said, I wish we'd have a Blu-ray release of this because I think this is a movie that could just pop on the big screen. And, and I think it would, it would greatly enhance it. Now, have you seen the movie Diabolique from 1955? I have. It's been a long, long time. And I saw that it's a, you know, variation of that. I can neither confirm nor deny because I don't remember, but it, Sounds reasonable to me that. Yeah, I, I mean, I see, I saw a few references to that. I have to admit, I don't believe that I've ever seen Diabolique. I think I've, I maybe had it on my DVR at various times and just never got to it. And I know that's a classic. Somewhere, somebody is like, you know, bashing their head against the desk. I was like, what? You haven't seen that film? I need to now because actually, I'm really curious as to, I, I you know, I looked at the plot of Diabolique and it was like, it, I would say there's a similar plot, but it seems like Diabolique goes down a different path. It's not a remake, and I'm not even sure reimagining would be appropriate. It's like just because there's similar themes doesn't necessarily mean it's a reimagining of, a, of another film. It's just like, well, they're taking, it's kind of like a slasher film, right? I mean, dumb teenagers go to the woods and, you know, crazy killer kills them. Would you say every film that after Friday the 13th was a reimagining of Friday the 13th? I, no, you wouldn't say that. But they can, you know, it has some of the same theme. But I am curious about the film now. There's a couple scenes I want to point out that I, I thought were exceptional. Several times there is genuine suspense. So you know that Barbara Steele's character, you know, is not too fond of her husband. He's uh, somewhat incapacitated. She's going to give him a shave. Well, you know, there's nothing creepier than, you know, the hands of the blade in someone that, you know, has it out for the other person and they're going to shave them. You know, I expected at any instant to just, 
you know, slicing. I was expecting the the uh, Sweeney Todd, uh, you know, routine. It's like, up oh, there we go. Yeah. You know, However, we get at the end. Let's just say there's sort of an explosion of of violence where uh, there's some blade action that comes in, but it's not at, during this uh, suspense. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. I also thought it was really really creepy when the ghost is speaking through Catherine's voice. Yes. through her body she's you know sitting in a chair in a trance and then this male voice is coming out yeah it was very effective yeah what is it with the skulls i mean just everywhere and a mausoleum the hallway into it little built-in shelves on the side skulls there's a skull on top of the coffin i i won that's one of those euro horror things that maybe they're like oh yeah we decorate our cemeteries with you know, I always wonder, like, where do the yeah. skulls come from? Whose skulls are those? I know. It's like, well, you're in a mausoleum. It's like you couldn't bother to give the poor soul a burial. It's like, no, we're going to use this skull for decoration. Yeah, it makes it look creepy. But yeah, you do wonder. So did they get those at the Halloween store just for decoration? Or, you know, those like servants that just didn't rank a full burial? We want to keep them with the family. There was one scene where and I for sure am going to put this on the video companion, that to me epitomizes why Barbara Steele was such a star in this genre. And that's uh, when she's sitting at her dressing table, brushing her hair, and she hears a noise behind her, and she kind of spins in her chair. And the look on her face, it's beautiful, it's captivating, it's, to me, just epitomized what Barbara Steele is. And that in that one shot, to me, it said, oh, okay, this, this is why Barbara Steele is Barbara Steele. I don't know if you recall that scene or not, but it's just the look in her eye. There's the innocence. There's yet there's always something behind it. You know, she, you know, she's not entirely good. There's something going on there. And I agree that she has that in her best film. She has moments like that, right? Where she just, her presence, you know, I, I was kind of going back to like, she's just not the, the typical Hollywood bubbly actress. She's got this, this Euro, Again, it's it's kind of it's it's stark and, and it's it's not. I know a lot of people will just say that she's just absolutely gorgeous and and you know I think it depends on what you what you gravitate towards. Sure. That Euro look doesn't necessarily pull me in, but I acknowledge that she's she's stunning. She has a very unique look. It is kind of like uh, <laughs> it's it's just this kind of like. You look at her as like, oh, she she's probably going to hurt me, yet I'm still drawn into it. Probably going to end up dead before the whole thing's over, but yet I can't say no. It's that yep. that yep. almost, uh, I hate to say it, but almost like a dominatrix type look about her. Just very harsh, yet not repulsive and very stunning. And I think that's, and she has those moments in her films where you just look at her as like, wow, she's just a stunning person. And, and I think... Going back to Long Hair of Death, I mean, there's a, a, a stark contrast between like her character and the other female lead in that film, who is very, very pretty and, and kind of demure. And the lead male is is just a savage in that film, but he's drawn to both. But there's just like a, a stark contrast between Steele's character, who is just, there's no spoiler alerts, but she's not who she appears to be. But yeah, then you've got the demure character, you know, over here that, you know, most guys would, would gravitate towards. But then it's kind of like the girls go for the bad guy. 
yeah, you got the good looking, you know, hunky guy over here, but then you got the the guy wearing the leather jacket over here, you know, who you know is trouble, but you can't say no to. That's who I feel like Barbara Steele for kind of fits in is like, yeah, she's she's not the the damsel in distress in her films, but yet will draw people in. I do want to do a spoiler alert though, because that is the my only thing that I didn't really care for in this film. If you don't want to spoiler, fast forward a couple minutes. And you know what it is. It's the Scooby-Doo ending. Things are not what they seem. You know, I get that. And maybe we've seen so many movies that the twist just isn't a surprise. But what would this movie have been if they had committed to the concept and that it was real? I don't know. I like it. It's just a personal preference. It doesn't make the movie any better or worse. I would like to have seen what would have happened had the supernatural really been supernatural. And I agree. I think that I hadn't thought of that now until you, you mentioned that that probably is another reason why this movie, I don't rank it quite as high because it was that, that ending kind of like, Oh really? You know, it's like, it's kind of like Mark of the vampire, you know, is an amazing vampire flick. And then till again, spoiler alert, you get to that final reveal and you're like, really? You know? And then there's like, you sit back and it's like, well, then why did they do this and this? You know, they wouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's it's that, that Scooby-Doo ending that kind of like is a little bit of a letdown. In a defense of that, though, I don't know if this would necessarily be a part that you felt was like dragging, but it goes to great extent to explain every little thing that wasn't real. He stands there and explains that he did this and that, and there's no question left unturned. There isn't that like, well, wait a minute, how could that have happened? I mean, it takes great pains I know it's well done the way that they did it. It was needed because, right, if they didn't have that, then then I would be saying it was like, yes, but they, they didn't give all the explanation and there was plot holes. Yeah, it drug on a little bit. I don't know how, but it was necessary. You, you kind of needed to, because they had done all this stuff up to this point. If they didn't explain, then it's kind of like going back to Mark of the Vampire. There's some things that like Bella Lugosi and the other, the female vampire there's things that they do at times that when the reveal is made at the end of the movie don't make sense. Yeah. It's like, well, why did they do this? That doesn't make sense if they're really this. Well, it's because it looked cool at that point in the film, right? And and it helped the atmosphere. But no, it doesn't make sense at the reveal. And you could probably nitpick with, you know, half the Scooby-Doo episodes of like... Why did, you know, old man Perkins do this? That doesn't make sense. Maybe they could have explained a little less at the end. And and you would have just, as long as they explained certain aspects, make that pick up a little bit. You got it. It's like, okay, well, that was probably part of this and that you didn't need to like a step by step. Then on day two, I did this and then day, yeah. And I, I remember the reference. I, I was going to say it, and then I had to double-check Psycho. That It ends that way with a lengthy explanation by the doctors of why Norman Bates is sitting in the cell and what happened and all the psychological. I love Psycho. I've always felt like that ending was almost a little anticlimactic in, in point. I mean, necessary and still chilling, you know, the vinyl scene of, uh, of Norman Bates done so remarkably well and maybe that's just the sign of a really good director because it while it seemed a little anticlimactic it never felt overly long 
and just kind of like, oh, there's all, you know, you're getting the explanation of stuff. Yeah, but with in the hands of a master like Hitchcock, it, it didn't come across as overly flat. It didn't it didn't deter from the rest of the film. That may be a thing on Ricardo Freda. Maybe it, you know, maybe he again, I felt like the movie needed to be tightened up a little bit, not excessively so. That would have probably been one part that I I would have shaved off a little bit. Well, you have anything else to say about it? You know, no, I, I do enjoy the ghost. If it sounds like I don't, I, again, I say that I do enjoy it. I feel this is a movie that I, I'd love to revisit if if we get a better release of it, because I do feel feel like there's more here that I want to tap into. Sometimes I can see a bad print of a film and, and enjoy it for what it's worth, but sometimes there's stuff hidden for me that I feel like a better print will, will change my perception of this movie and I'll love it more. As it is, uh, it is a relatively easy film for everyone to find. You can get it on Amazon Prime. Sinister Cinema has it. It's out on Alpha Video. It's also on YouTube. And I'm pretty sure they all have the same print. It's not horrible as far as public domain prints go. It's just not the best print that hopefully we will get a better one somewhere down the road. And I think the fact that it's got Barbara Steele in it and it's the title, The Ghost, I think is, is a film that at some point would draw people's attention in. I mean, I think that would be a cool Blu-ray release. So hopefully someday, but I did enjoy it. The next movie you've mentioned it several times, The Long Hair of Death in 1964. It was directed by Antonio Margariti, who is a well-known Italian director. He also did Castle of Blood with Barbara. Her next movie, same year, 1964, Wild Wild Planet, Web of the Spider, you watch this. I have not seen it. What would you like to tell us about this movie? Anything? My favorite Barbara Steele film. Absolutely. Yeah, everyone talks about Antonio Margariti. I know Rod Barnett does. Going to keep mentioning him because he's just always kind of in, you know, immersed in the in Euro horror. And I'm nowhere the Euro horror expert. And I Antonio Margariti is somebody that I'm familiar with. This is it's a, a beautiful film. It's out on Blu-ray from uh, Raro Video and well worth tracking down. There's some nice extras with it. Really don't get any extras on the other Raro Video one that we'll be talking about, She Beast, later on. Long Hair of Death, I think Barbara still has her best performance because she's very much the one of the main stars of the film. The running time is perfect. It's beautifully shot very atmospheric, very, you know, it's like, and it it pops up on a lot of people's list as like the best of the Euro Gothic horror genre. There's a sensuality from Steele that again, she's this harsh character in the film, but there's a softer side to her in this film that you, I don't think that I, I, I really saw as much in other films. And then of course, when you get to the reveal at the end, it makes those scenes even more chilling when you realize it's like everything she was doing, you know, was leading to this. The ending of that film, no spoilers, but I, I will just say the Wicker Man had to channel the long hair of death. Mm. Very, very chilling ending. Highly recommend Long Hair of Death. It truly is an amazing film and, and my personal favorite of the Barbara Steele movies. Awesome. Did you watch Castle of Blood? 
I did. I saw Nightmare Castle, Castle of Blood. I saw both of those. Okay. Um, uh, let me go ahead and mention Nightmare Castle, and then maybe you can uh, comment on either or both of them. Yeah. Director Mario Cayano. Supposedly, Nightmare Castle 1965 came from his passion of the gothic genre and for Barbara Steele. So he built that project around her and the genre. That's all I know about those two. I know a little bit more. Nightmare Castle is on Blu-ray from Severn Films. And as extras on the Blu-ray, you get two more films. You get Nightmare Castle and Terror Creatures from the Grave, which is the next film we'll be going into more proper. Plus there's, you get trailers for each of the films. You get featurettes for all three films. You get interviews. You get deleted scenes. And again, I paid $15 for the for this Blu-ray. I think it's going for a little less than 30 now. I don't know if it's out of print or why the price has jumped, but even for less than $30, it's a good deal because you're getting three movies and they're the best prints of all three films that you're going to get anywhere, hands down. Nightmare Castle looks beautiful, beautiful print. It's a little long for me. You have some familiar themes. Woman and her lover are tortured and killed by her sadistic husband, and the pair return from the grave to seek vengeance. Still plays twin sisters, very different versions, very different characters, which really kind of shows Barbara Steele's um, acting ability, I guess is the way to say it. And she's just portrayed very differently. A little long, but really a beautiful print. Nightmare Castle, probably one of my, one of my other favorite Barbara Steele films. Castle of Blood, uh, which is directed by Antonio Margariti. The print that they have on there is also really good. That's a film that pops up on Alpha Video, Public Domain Prints. It is by far uh, the best print of Castle of Blood. So again, just another endorsement for Severn Films. That film has to do about a journalist taking a bet that he can spend the night in a haunted castle on All Hallows' Eve. And during his stay, he bears witness to the castle's gruesome past coming to life before him and falls in love with a beautiful female ghost played by Barbara Steele. Continuing the, the ghostly vengeance trend. And I should say that IMDb is giving me the, the the captions for some of these films. Castle of Blood was remade as Web of the Spider. Antonio Margariti felt like he could improve upon the film and actually then regretted it, saying that the original was much more atmospheric because it was filmed in black and white. I enjoyed Web of the Spider. Uh, it does have Klaus Kinski. You know, the Poe aspect of it is really kind of downplay i think it almost feels like they put poe in there more as a homage of the two films castle blood was very atmospheric web of the spider not so much and i guess it's that sometimes you get just the use of shadows and imagery in a black and white film as opposed to sometimes a color film you lose the ability to do shadows and and shades which is why I always love black and white film for, for certain things so much more than color. Color, of course, if done proper, you get the colors will pop and can think of like the Roger Corman, Vincent Price films. Obviously, those need to be in color. So if done well, obviously, color can surpass black and white. I think it depends on the theme. I highly recommend both of those films, though, and, and the Severn Films Blu-ray release. Barbara Steele is really good in Castle of Blood. 
there's a sensuality about her character a little bit in that film, not to the level that you that you see in like Long Hair of Death. I've seen Castle of Blood. I liked it. Uh, I don't believe I've seen Nightmare Castle. You've got the Severin Films yes. Blu-ray, right? Yeah, check it out. I, I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. It's a beautiful print. It's an amazing print. Richard, before we get to our next movie, which is in 1965, I'm just kind of curious. What happened in Italy in 1965? Well, the Queen of England was, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) How much was gas? Uh, You know, I could not find that. I actually tried to find, I guess, what do they call it? Petrol or whatever the Italian word is for petrol. Uh, I could not find that. I'm sorry. Um, A little harder to find pop culture, you know, references for Italy, but I did find some. Aldo Moro was the prime minister of Italy. Have to say, I've never heard of his name. So I don't know if he was a good prime minister or not. The 1960s was actually an interesting time in Italy. It was the beginning of a period of transformation. It stemmed from like the post-World War II rebuild of Europe. Late 50s on into the 60s, Italy was moving away from an agrarian society to becoming one of the most advanced civilizations in the world in the sense that they were embracing their their history, but they were moving beyond just that agrarian society. And they were embracing technology and fashion and cinema. And they were basically, for lack of a better term, they were joining the rest of the world, right? And they they were really coming of their own. This, of course, was in conjunction with the end of the Second Vatican Council, which for those of you who are Catholic, this was a huge major shift in the Catholic religion. It was a change of some of the religious practices. Masses used to be told in Latin, were recited in Latin, and the priest on the altar would face the altar. His back was to the congregations. The congregation really didn't feel like they were part of what was going on. They were just almost like observing. And the Second Vatican Council did away with the Latin Mass as the proper Mass, changed it to, you know, English or whatever the language of choice was in your country, and the priests began to face the congregation, um, which then, of course, brought people, it almost felt like, oh, the priest is talking to us now, rather than they were just witnessing something. It was a big shift that took place over the course of, of, of quite a few years, and Really, it is considered, I think, even to this day, the the biggest shift in overall beliefs and practices that the Catholic faith had. There's been another one not too many years ago where they updated prayers and things like that. But that was just kind of also part of everything that was happening in Italy because there was, in the 1960s, there was a first step towards the de-Christianization of Italy which culminated eventually uh, in the 1980s, where Roman Catholicism was no longer the state religion. Religious education in schools became voluntary. The state stopped funding priest salaries. That started in the 60s with, again, just the, the overall change happening in Italy and then culminated in that. It was a big shift away that took place over a couple of decades. There was a lot of popular film genres happening in Italy at this time. You had the Spaghetti Western. 1965 saw the movie for a few dollars more with Clint Eastwood released. Uh, Other films like Minnesota Clay, 
The Man Called Gringo, and Seven Hours of Gunfire. You also had the Euro spy genre was incredibly popular. A lot of James Bond ripoffs, including one of my favorite, uh, and I actually haven't seen these films. I've seen clips of them. This trilogy of films I absolutely want to dive into. It's the Agent 077 films, two films of which were released in 65, Mission Bloody Mary and From the Orient with Fury, which, I mean, obviously is a take on From Russia with Love. Nonetheless, yeah, huge. You had films that we talked about, Nightmare Castle, Bloody Pit of Horror were released. Mario Bava classic Planet of the Vampires was released in 65. So then, of course, music. This is a little tougher, right? Because just like, again, not pop music. But the 10th Eurovision Song Contest was held in Naples and on television. Another popular thing on television was an adaptation of David Copperfield, which I think would be totally unique to see Dickens in Italian. One of the most popular songs of the year was La Danza di Zorba by Mikas Theodorakis better known as Zorba the Greek. That was hugely popular, one of the number one songs of the year in Italy. I had to do a, a, a YouTube search on that. That's what I was thinking. I was like, that would be an awesome song to throw in the mix of, of the show. I would love Zorba the Greek. Anyway, the original version's a little different. The Herb Alpert version is the one that always gets played. You can't help, I don't care, if you listen to the song, you got to stand up and dance and have some couscous and just, yeah, you know, whatever. That's all I got for what happened in Italy in 1965. Thank you for that, Mr. Historian. Let's take our second break and we'll come back and talk about Terror Creatures from the Grave from 1965. Terror Creatures from the Grave. Avenge me. I've summoned you. night of reckoning, the forces of darkness strike with blood-freezing horror. house of blood by the maniac called Geronimus, a dead man with the monstrous power to return from his grave. I tell you, it was my father. I saw him. What do you sure. say? Can't you see the boat is empty? chilling shocker inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. Terror Creatures from the Grave starring Barbara Steele. Things don't go well for Albert Kovac when he's summoned to review the will of Geronimus Holly. First of all, Geronimus died a year ago. Then townspeople began mysteriously dying as the anniversary of his death approaches. That's only where the nightmare begins for Cleohoff and her daughter Corinne, 
when they're visited by terror creatures from the grave. Richard, what do we make of Terror Creatures from the Grave, 1965, released on June 23rd in Italy, and again came here about a year later in the United States, first saw it in April of 1966? I love how this movie, and if I get the exact verbiage, inspired by, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, they just kind of throw that name out there. I, I kind of felt that was a little bit of a uh, Roger Corman-esque yeah, this this has got a feel of Poe. We'll throw Poe's name on it. I don't know that I got a Poe feeling necessarily, but you could get Poe from just about any horror, right? I mean, I, I, I kind of felt like that was a, a grasping the straws a little bit. Nonetheless, this is a movie that's public domain. And so uh, chances are, if you have a Mill Creek set, it's on that Mill Creek set. It's a movie that has popped up on a variety of different public domain sources that I have never seen until now. And I will just come right out of the gate and say, you have to see the Blu-ray version of this. Make sure you're watching the, the, the Severin Blu-ray version because the print, while not perfect, in fact, there's one part of the print that was a bit rough, it is leaps and bounds better than the public domain version. It is, it's widescreen, it's clear, it's sharp. Most of the public domain versions are, are full screen and a little bit muddy. I can't imagine making it through this film, watching the public domain version. Seek out the, the Severin version for this. I know that it's been out on Alpha Video. It's for rent on Amazon Prime, which I find kind of funny is like, I don't know if they've got the good version of it, but why would you rent a public domain print? But again, it's an extra on the Nightmare Castle Blu-ray. And then I think that's absolutely the way to go with this film. I enjoyed it, but not as much as The Ghost. I struggled with this one a little bit. It, I felt like it meandered a little bit at times. The running time was was good. I don't know that there was anything that stood out to me that should have been edited or, or cut back. I struggled with some of the plot points and trying to figure out for starters. I mean, you've got the, just the, the, the random song with the girl that pops in to me, it was kind of jarring a little bit. I don't know. It just kind of took me out of the moment. And I, I was trying to figure out towards the end of the film, you know, the water's evaporating and, and things. And then, you know, conveniently things happen, not giving away the, the end of the film. The script, I guess, is where I'm getting at. I, I struggled a little bit with the script. I didn't hate it. Uh, I enjoyed the movie, very atmospheric. And again, I think I can't imagine not seeing the, the good print of it because then I don't think I would have enjoyed it nearly as much. I didn't enjoy this one as much as The Ghost. I did enjoy it significantly more than the third film we're going to watch. I liked it a lot. Here's something that I think will signify what the difference between the ghost and this is. So it has the same trappings of of the ghost, the gothic. I mean, almost exactly like a, a checklist, you know, cold, creepy cold castle, uh, all of that thing. But what this has that the ghost doesn't is the storms, the thunder and the lightning. And the way it signifies the difference is this is a type of movie where Early on, when the big reveal is that her husband is dead, cue the thunder, cue the lightning. It's a little more manufactured, a little more less natural, 
more forced. Yeah, I would agree. I, I would uh, agree. And be careful what you wish for. In the last movie, I said I wish they would commit to the concept and not have it explained. Here's one that does. There really is supernatural. And then it's just kind of, I don't know if it's budget or what. They don't really have, uh, they've got the commitment to the concept. They don't have the the commitment for the payoff, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. The the ending is, it's a letdown I, I, for me. I mean, it was, it was a bit of a letdown. And that's where I struggle. It's like, I, I love certain aspects of this film. Again, I think it, it looks so good at times. The ending just, just I, there's that plot point, you know, it's just like, it felt like some things just happened that are just too convenient. I guess my, my idea of a Euro horror film, and, and again, having not seen a, a ton of Euro horror, to me, it seemed like, oh, that's that kind of a cheap cop-out that tends to, when, when certain things happen, and I don't, again, not giving away the, the spoiler of the film, the end of the film, but it just seems so convenient. Uh, I think you even sent me a, a text message on that. I was like, oh, you know, how lucky for them that you have that final event in the film that resolves their problem. Yeah, it seemed very low-budget Hollywood-esque and, and something I felt like Euro horror should would do better, I guess. Yeah, I don't get the water thing at all. I mean, I, I get it how it's like their savior and it is, you know, mentioned throughout the movie. It's not like a surprise, but yet somehow the way it is portrayed is incredibly convenient and doesn't make a lot of sense. What did you think of that song that kept popping up? To me, it, it just seemed so out of place. Yeah. I liken it to, you know, the mysterious music box that plays a creepy tune that has something to do tying the past to the present and, but in a different way and not as effective. Yeah, it was just odd. I will tell you there's a, in this compared to the ghost, we have a couple of, I don't know if I'd say advancements, but additions or whatever. Number one, there's more gore. It's a little bit gorier and there's more skin. I mean, there are twice, you know, a side boob shot of, of, of a woman. And so it's getting a little sexier, getting a little bloodier. Yeah, that would be an anomaly or if, you know, that is something that continues to be added to the to the your horror about. The, I know the reputation of your horror many times is sex and blood and we're not there yet. But I wonder if this yeah. is a kind of dipping our toes. Probably. In. I would think, yeah, probably the earliest cases of it. I think you were talking about uh, Marella Maravildi. No, I butchered that. Marella Maravidi or Marilyn Mitchell, as she was billed. She played the character of uh, Kareem, which Barbara Steele's character is Cleo. It's Cleo's yeah, sister. She didn't do a lot of films, only did 10 films, and this is kind of the, the biggest one that she did. Uh, I'm not sure why she had such a short career, but kind of thrown into a little bit of sex appeal. Now, I'm getting these confused. One of the gore scenes, well, two of, I think it's both of these movies, The Ghost and this, where there's a dead person who's, guts are exposed yeah and one of them you know it's the, the the dead supposedly dead person you know stands in front of somebody and like literally holding their guts in in the other one they're in the coffin and they open it and the dead body's in there and oh which one was that because the it was a point about the decomposition oh i think that was in the ghost because yes. of the injections he was taking it made yes decay faster so therefore when they open the coffin 
you know, there's a big pile of guts in there. Yeah. I mean, you see the, the, the that's, that's I'm thinking of, of decomposing bodies. I mean, that pops up in black Sunday because she doesn't look quite as bad as you think she should look when the mask is taken off of her long hair of death. There's a scene of, of a decomposing body with worms and things in the eyes, you know, which again, much more graphic if it would have been in color almost more stylistic because it or stylish because it was in black and white. So you don't have to endure the bloody gory aspects of it. Yeah. It's a theme that they didn't overdo at this point in the movies. They, they, they give you a little bit of that and maybe it's like a one or two scenes for, I think almost for shock value, but not done excessively. Like by the time you get to the seventies, it's everything's almost reversed, right? Everything was more shock value with a little bit of plot thrown in on some movies, you, you would see rotting corpses excessively in films and then, oh, let's throw in some plot so we can piece together this rotting corpse and this rotting corpse. Yeah, much, much more subdued at this point. The plot is, in a way, sort of the ghost deconstructed and put together with and flipped. So in this case, yeah. Yeah. people are speculating, well, what if it's not supernatural? And then it turns out to be, and it's the reveal of Barbara Steele, spoilers, being involved with another man comes at the end rather at, than at the beginning. Like you said, same kind of themes, just kind of blended up and, and delivered differently. Yep. I know it's going to sound like I'm picking on this movie. I really, I like this a lot. The case will not be the same for the next movie. It's just, there's more, I think, going just more things that bugged me about this one, even though I did really like it. There's a really, it's kind of an impressive cast from, from an Italian perspective and casting crew. I mean, there's a lot, a lot going for this film. And, and, and when you look at it that way, it's almost like this movie should have been more when you look at like who's involved, because the character of Albert Kovac is played by Walter Brandt. He did a lot of classic films, like he's in uh, The Vampire and the Ballerina, The Playgirls and the Vampire, a couple of films that I'd love to see just based on the title, Curse of the Blood Ghouls and The Monster of the Opera. It's also in Bloody Pit of Horror. Character of Dr. Nemec or Nemec was played by Alfred Rice or Alfredo Rizzo. He was in The Playgirls and the Vampire, Curse of the Blood Ghouls, Bloody Pit of Horror, Spirits of the Dead from 68. If you've ever seen that one, that's a, that's the Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, I have. Uh, yeah, that, that's a, a kind of a tougher one to get, get through. I, I had, it took me a couple of viewings on that one before I could finally say I enjoyed it, but it, it would not be something I think that I would go to again. That's the one with Jane Fonda in it. Artsy is the best way to, to describe that one. The character of uh, Joseph Morgan was played by Ricardo Garone or Richard Garrett, highly prolific Italian actor of which I didn't recognize anything, but he has 182 credits. From a cast perspective, I mean, yeah, you had a lot going for it, a lot going behind the scenes too. You had a screenplay by Romano Migliorini, who was billed as Robin McLaurin. Bloody Pit of Horror, Kill Baby Kill, Night of the Devils is a movie that I've seen pop up several times on, on lists. It might even be on Shudder right now, actually. Roberto Natale or Robert Nathan, 
Again, a lot of the same films. Lisa and the Devil is another one, which I know is on Shudder right now. They're, they've got the Mario Bava collection on uh, Shudder this month. The script was adapted by Cesar Mancini, who, looking at his credits, The Reluctant Virgin is one that pops up. I've seen that title before. And Ruth Carter. It was like all these other names. is like, okay, was that an Italian writer that billed herself as Ruth Carter? This is the only film that Ruth ever worked on. I don't know who Ruth was and what her involvement was, but it kind of stands out. Now, this movie was directed by Massimo Papillo, which we mentioned, but it's billed as being for Ralph Zucker. And this is where the confusion comes in, because Ralph Zucker is one of the producers of the film. Because the film was credited to the directed by Ralph Zucker, people have thought that it was the producer, Ralph Zucker, who also directed the film. Well, no, Massimo was the one who directed it. He didn't like it and didn't want to take credit for it. He was not happy with the film. And so he said, let's just give it to Ralph. And so Ralph Zucker's name was used, but in fact, wasn't the same person in any way, shape or form. Years later, Massimo is kind of taking credit for the film, but he still doesn't like it. I think that there's an interview with him, actually, as one of the extras, because that's where I got the information that he doesn't care for it. He's also not a fan of uh, Lucio Fulci. If I remember correctly, that interview didn't really feel like he was a fan of Italian horror films either, which I think is why he just kind of like, eh, you know, doesn't really care for this movie. And it's interesting that if you watch that interview, when he's asked about Lucio Fulci specifically, I mean, it's, it's an audit, uh, audio only interview, but you can just hear his tone immediately change. So there was some definite hatred for Lucio Fulci which I thought was interesting because you always hear him praised. Apparently not the case, at least not with Massimo. He also had a lot of problems with Barbara Steele. He was the one that said that her attitude was really disgusting. Barbara Steele, I think, was also getting frustrated with horror films at this point. So I think that played into her. She just didn't want to do another horror film kind of attitude. He actually ended up yelling at her in front of the cast and crew. And then she basically chilled out and was good for the rest of the rest of the filming experience. He had to call her on the carpet in front of everybody. Basically is like, look, get, get your stuff together and, and quit being the, you know, I guess she was being kind of a diva and just difficult to deal with on set, which again, more than one person has said this about Barbara. So I don't know if it was just her persona or if, her attitude towards the film or, you know, just the, that particular point in time. I don't know. Again, it's kind of like you got two sides of the story and somewhere in the middle is the truth. More than one person has, has commented that Steele was difficult to deal with. You begin to think that maybe she was a little bit of a diva on the set. This movie also features Luciano Pigozzi. We've spoken with him before. I can't remember what we didn't spoke of him before we did not speak with him. I don't remember what movie it was, but he is the Italian Peter Lorre because of his resemblance to Peter Lorre. He has a small but pivotal role. I had trouble with the way the script handled this because you first, well, first of all, you see him and you don't know, they don't explain who he is. He's just like lurking around the house. And one of the characters says, what a strange creature. He has such a faraway look. And this turns out to be Kurt the gardener. 
literally that's his role. If you look in IMDb, yeah. the gardener, uh, he'll come back later, but all too conveniently. It's when they still think that that this is not supernatural and there could be different explanations. There, there's a certain plot point where they just instantly go, well, we've got to talk to Kurt. And that seemed a little out of nowhere. It, they didn't really sprinkle anything between the two points to yeah. make us think, oh, you know, Kurt's involved somehow. That was kind of weird. I also think the dubbing isn't as good in this movie. There are things that people say that just don't sound like people would really talk. Like in this debate about uh, between the skeptic and the believer of, of if it's supernatural or not, Albert, who's the skeptic, says he's so convinced it's pathetic. And that just, I don't know, it didn't seem like a real statement. It, it just, that, you know, that's like always it's, forced a, in. it's one of those that's like forced in so that the words match the lips sort of, yeah. a bit, maybe. That's always a problem with dubbing anytime is that you're getting actors who are essentially reading lines and trying to, and sometimes they, you know, there's not even a, a vague attempt to try to match what's going on the screen. And so that's where people always, they laugh about dubbed films because it's, it's, you're not hearing the original inflection of the actor or actress in that particular moment. Good voice actors and, and dubbing actors and actresses will be able to convince you that what you're seeing is really the dialogue that goes with it. And then, yeah, you have moments like that where it's just like, yeah, that's not what, that doesn't make sense. They, you know, again, yeah, you said they're trying to, to get words to match the lips. And that sometimes this can be the absolute worst thing to do. What often happens in some of the Japanese films, right, is that there's lips moving and there's nothing happening or, you know, that the dialogue is, is so different that nothing is matching up. When you dive into any type of dubbed film, you, that's, you're going to have to accept that and try not to let it pull you out of the moment. I think for so many years, people laughed at the Godzilla films because of that. Thankfully, now we have all the Godzilla films with the original language and subtitles it can change the tone of the film drastically. I, I think it does for the Godzilla films. I mean, you watch some of the dub movies, they come across as very kind of goofy and cartoonish, but then you're using the original Japanese language. Everything sounds so intense, even when they're, when they're trying not to be, that you just, it makes the film much more serious. You know, sometimes you're dealing with goofy situations. It can change the tone of the film drastically. And I do, again, I do like this movie. I love the the basic plot. You know, this house is built on the ancient burial ground. Well, not built on. This is actually a former, I think, hospital where they treated plague victims. Yeah, yeah. And then they were buried anonymously in the graveyard. And then there's this revenge. Five people that participated in this person's death. And these are the people that are dying. And then the fifth person is a mystery. I think that's kind of cool. Again, it's kind of solved a little too easily they instantly know who the fifth person is but i like the idea even though the execution isn't that great but there's then there's silly things like they dig up a a coffin and it's empty and this helps them identify you know out of the blue here they are in a graveyard you know and albert says is there a phone nearby well i don't know is there usually a phone nearby in a a graveyard i mean that just I don't know. It just there's weird stuff. So it's very yeah, inconsistent. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. Great gothic trappings. I love the mummified hands that they keep in the case, and I love the idea about plague victims rising. 
but it just really, it peters off at the end. You don't really get the payoff. You see graves opening and maybe a hand reached out. That's about really all you get. I mean, the horror in this really is what the people do, even though there's the threat of this supernatural horror. Yep. I don't think I have anything else to say about it. Do you? No, it's not bad. It's not perfect. It, it kind of falls right in the middle appropriately of, of the three that we're doing. Yeah, it's it kind of smack dab in the middle for me. I think you liked it probably a little better than I did. I don't know that I would go back and revisit this. Unlike The Ghost, right, I want to see that again. And unlike some of the other ones, I, I would definitely revisit. I'm not sure that I would revisit this one, which I guess kind of speaks volumes. I enjoyed it, but I had some problems with it. Speaking of speaking volumes, I can't wait to get to our next movie, <laughs> E-Beast or Revenge of the Blood Beast from 1966. But let's take uh, a break before we do that. I need to steal myself and uh, get it, steal myself. <laughs> so we'll be right back. The She-Beast, deadlier than Dracula, wilder than the werewolf, more frightening than Frankenstein. Another victim of a strange revenge, wreaked on the innocent from beyond the grave, hurling a town into a terrifying struggle against the powers of darkness. The witch Verdella, known to be dead for centuries, comes to blood-chilling life before disbelieving eyes, unleashing all manner of monstrous evil in the town in which she was supposed to have breathed her last. see a creature of the damned damning the living to destruction when you cease starring Barbara Steele Mel Wells and co-starring John Carlson you'll see a monster in human form defy her doom as the townspeople drag her from her cave to the witch's dunking chair but even that deadly device cannot Things don't go well for Philip and Veronica when they spend their honeymoon in Transylvania. First of all, they stay in an inn run by a peeping Tom. Then they run their car off the road into the same lake where a witch was drowned 200 years ago. That's only where the nightmare begins for the newlyweds, when Veronica disappears and Philip may suffer from the revenge of the blood beast. That sounds much more dramatic than the movie. <laughs> it certainly does. So, Revenge of the Blood Beast, 1966, a movie for which Barbara Steele was paid a whopping salary of $1,000. And maybe back then, I don't know, but it uh, doesn't seem like much. It doesn't seem like much. I know we're going to dog on this movie. There are some things that I really liked about it. I don't know. Do we want to go good? What do you want first, good news or bad news? We should probably mention the She-Beast is the other title that yes. this film is probably most commonly referred to as. Uh, I like the Italian title, uh, Il Lago di Satana. Uh, that makes it sound so much better than it actually mm-hmm. is. Let's just come right out of the gate and say that the Raro video Blu-ray release print is stunning and it's a beautiful print. This is another public domain film that you can easily get your hands on. It pops up on every possible set. You're going to be seeing a full screen 
typically rougher print. If you want to see this film in a, in a beautiful print, then then seek out the Raro video version. Amazon Prime actually has the same print though. So I, from what I can tell, so you can actually save yourself the money and go to Amazon Prime. I think it's the same good, good print that, that Raro Video had, from what I could tell. But it's not going to improve <laughs> the film, unfortunately. This movie is, it's, it's a mess. So why don't we start off with the good, and then we can get to the bad and the ugly. All right, well, it opens fantastic. Uh, there's a witch, they, townspeople grab their torches, they grab her, they tie her to this marvelous contraption and wheel her down to the lake. And it's like a big seesaw. It, it looked like a catapult. I thought first they were going to like shoot her across yes, the, too, yeah, the sky yeah. or something, but it's a, it's like a seesaw and they dip her in the water and accuse her of witchcraft. They hammer a hot spike into her. Yeah, brutal. Um, wonderful. And I thought, oh my gosh, we are in for a treat. Well, this is about the time in the movie where Jeff thinks, oh, I forgot to check in on IMDb. You know, I like to post to the group page that I'm watching it. You know, look it up on my phone. Hmm, horror comedy. We all know I don't, you know, horror comedies are rough for me. And this, the comedy aspects of this were really rough for me. Now, again, I like some of it. There are a, a, a smattering of amusing moments thrown in. I like it that they're in Transylvania and the people they run across, do you know the Draculas? Ah, that's kind of cute. I kind of like the comment where she and her new husband are driving and they leave the town and they're talking about how they don't like it. And she says, well, she thought it was kind of quaint. And he says, so was the plague. I thought that was kind of amusing. Uh, I liked it at the end when... <laughs> They find the witch's body. She's unconscious. I'm not sure how or why at that point. And they take one look at her and say, oh, she's revolting and dead. I thought that was cute. So those are the things that that worked comedy-wise for me. Uh, Three things out of an hour and a half movie, you know, is not that great. I also like the setup and the concept of going to Transylvania I like the lore or the world. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this for this movie, but the world building that it does. This is where there's an, an ancestor of Van Helsing. And sure, yeah. there's no vampires because his family has wiped them out over the years. This is a great, great grandson of a Van Helsing that's here. The threat they have now is witches or a particular witch. Yeah. But there's mention of a library where books on the supernatural are stored. It's the only place because following you know, all the vampires and eradicating them. The government has said they have kind of yeah. gotten rid of all that documentation and things. I thought that was good. And that's where my list stops. <laughs> so Michael Reeves wrote and directed this film. He put a lot into the background, uh, uh, as you said. Yes, th- th- there's a lot of thought that went into this this movie, at least the premise behind it. And all of that sounds like this should be an amazing film. You've got a lot of of interesting people involved in this movie. Barbara Steele gets top credit, and she plays the character of Veronica. But, yeah, she worked, as you said, one day. A long day. She worked 18 hours and apparently very unhappy during the process. And I don't blame her. That's that's, You're paying a 1000 bucks for one day's work, and then they... 
18 hours. I mean, they, they couldn't have gone much closer, right? That, that's crazy. Unfortunately, she's not in the film very much. I mean, she's in the first act, I guess, and then she disappears until the final scene. There, there's a large chunk of this film in which she is missing, and unfortunately, things really go off kilter in that time from when she leaves and then returns. As you said, the Von Helsing character, Count Von Helsing is played by John Carlson, who was also in Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. He's got an interesting filmography. So he's in Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, a Christmas movie, a Euro Christmas movie called The Christmas That Almost Wasn't that I've talked about before. He was in Spirits of the Dead. And then you flash forward a little bit. He was in The Winds of War, which will be something we'll mention again. And then he played the evil Duke in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. All across the board there. You got Michael Reeves' best friend, Ian Ogilvy, plays the character of Philip, who did some other films around this period of time. The Sorcerers with Boris Karloff, Witchfinder General with Vincent Price. Uh, also did From Beyond the Grave. He did lots of British and American TV. Also did... Later on in his career, Death Becomes Her, which kind of boggled my mind that, you know, I was like, wow, he's getting still going strong at that point. So we have the the innkeeper, Ladislav Groper. And I don't know how, <laughs> <laughs> if that was how done appropriate. intentional or not. Mel Wells. Mel Wells did, he was heavily involved in the film and, and in, he's got a lot of credits to his name he was actually involved in the writing there was a lot of people i guess i guess we should kind of backtrack so my, michael reeves the, he is officially credited for the writing but there was a lot of other people involved so i guess the question is how much did he write and how much did the other people write uh, i can and, take a guess i mean this is the guy that directed Witchfinder general so so you've got Charles B. Griffith, who was one of the writers. He did It Conquered the World, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Bucket of Blood, Little Shop of Horrors. F. Amos Powell, who wrote Tower of London, the 62 version with Vincent Price. He was a production manager on The Brain Eaters and Invasion of the Star Creatures. And then Mel Wells was one of the writers. Now, Mel Wells had 105 acting credits, including... Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, um, Attack of the Crab Monsters, and Mr. Mushnick and Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I mean, he did other things. And then the she-beast, Vardella, which I'm not even sure they ever gave her the name in, in the movie. I don't recall uh, that. I'm not sure. Maybe it was in passing. But nonetheless, that's how she's listed in IMDb. Was played by Joe Flash Riley who had 11 acting credits, including Good Time, Sanford and Son, and Taxi. <laughs> I don't know. A lot, obviously, a lot of credit. And let's talk Michael Reeves, because he was credited for finishing Castle of the Living Dead, the 1964 film, which I love, with Christopher Lee. Have you ever seen that one, that the acting true? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. That's such a, a, a quirky film. He also wrote, uncredited, but he also wrote parts of Hammer's Crescendo. And, uh, of course, he also directed The Sorcerers and Witchfinder General. Did not get along well with Vincent Price. 
there's that infamous quote, how many films have, have you know, you know, or Vincent Price says, you know, I've done over a hundred films or whatever. How many, you know, have you done? And I've, well, I've done three good ones, <laughs> which <laughs> classic line, but, you know, obviously Vincent Price fans will bristle at that. This film was made, or well, was released in Italy in, it was released in the U.S. first in 66, but then released in Italy in 67, which I thought was interesting. Michael Reeves was supposed to do the Oblong Box, but then died at a very young age, February 11th, 1969, at the age of 25 of an accidental drug overdose. And it was not, he was not a drug addict. Apparently they were drugs for, I think it was anxiety. He was having some medical issues and he was on lots of drugs. And apparently they, they threw away the drugs because he was taking too many, but then he found a prescription and, and went ahead and overdosed accidentally. Apparently there, there was talks that he was a drug addict, but his friend uh, Ian Ogilvie said, no, he wasn't. He actually had some medical conditions and he overdosed on drugs that he shouldn't have been taking in the first place. Hmm. A couple things here before you go on. This movie has the feeling, and now that you say there's a bunch of writers of, well, okay, let me backtrack. So first of all, all those people you listed, those are all Corman people, Griffith and Mel Wells and all that. And then you say it premiered in America first. There seem to be some type of American tie to this. I don't know. And maybe our listeners can help us out in this if they have some information about that. But it just seems unusual there. And it does have a feeling of like a Hollywood movie where maybe Michael Reeves submitted this movie and they thought, oh, this is too dark. This needs to be a comedy. I don't know. It's just just something weird about it. Oh, it's an odd film. There's so much... The film goes off track so easily. So in the first act, you have Mr. Groper. <laughs> he's a pervert. And he is, he's like, walkie walks in on Philip and Veronica, obviously hoping to get a shot of something. And then, of course, uh, as Philip and Veronica have kind of an intense love scene for 66, things were getting a little hot there. Mr. Groper goes around the window and he's like, you know, gets all excited we get a, a side boob shot of Barbara Steele, you know, which might very well be the best thing about the movie. <laughs> then Philip, of course, goes out and attacks Mr. Groper. And I thought he killed him, actually, when, when you, yeah. you see his head bash against the wall and there's like blood. But no, Groper's still alive. When Groper's introduced, you got some comedy to him. He's kind of this comical character. The music makes it seem comical but then he's a pervert. And then later on, he goes full-blown dark because his niece hears the witch and comes and then he like ends up, was like, ah, well, you've come for comfort from your uncle. And like two seconds later, he's trying to rape her in gross, in (laughs) seedy fashion. I mean, there's no comedy. I mean, so it's like, how do you build, you introduce this guy as a comedic character then he's a peeping Tom, and now he's a full-blown rapist at the end of the... Yeah, that, that's a totally bizarre track for any character in a film. Totally mishandled at the beginning uh, of the film. And it's like, this. I guess it makes it shocking when he ends up trying to rape his niece, but he's very much of a pig in the movie. Not in a comedic way. I don't know. And again, maybe that's the different writers coming into play. Maybe one writer's like, we're going to make him a comedian. And then someone else said, we're going to do a rape scene. You know, it's like, and oh, well, you know, did you not know that in the beginning of the film that, that he's being made off to be a comical character? 
that could be where there's you got too many people messing with the script. But then I will say that falls on director Michael Reeves should have known better that this this is not the way you want to present this character because he's going to be doing this and something that, you know, maybe he didn't have the time in post-edit wrapping up the film. I mean, it was only shot in 21 days, so it was a very rushed production, not a Roger Corman rushed production, but still when something like that happens, it falls on the director. And I think Michael Reeves, a lot of people love him. I'm going to say in regards to some of the, the wide variety of film that we get, Michael Reeves fails miserably in this movie to, to, to keep the tone constant because what is this movie? I mean, it's, it's presented as a horror film, but then there's clearly comedic elements and then it goes back to being a horror film a good director would have kept the film reined in. So I will say that Vincent Price knew what he was talking about. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I just said it and there, bam, mic drop. Yeah, some plot points don't make sense. A pivotal plot point to me is they retrieve the witch. And I, I don't even really understand what happened. I don't know if the witch possessed Barbara Steele's body, so instead of hauling her out of the lake, they haul the witch. They say later something about the witch is going to give birth to Veronica. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't have any idea. But anyway, she's unconscious. She's incapacitated. Why does Van Helsing bring her back to life? I mean, he goes through a ritual to bring her back to life. The yeah. only thing I could think is he does mention that when the witch was originally destroyed, and we saw his ancestors, great grandfather standing on the hill, and something about it wasn't done right. You know, so I'm wondering, does he have to resurrect her so that he can kill well, her they, properly? They, they address in the beginning of the film, right? The little boy is telling the, the mob, no, no, the Count said that that the witch needs to be exorcised first, which I never heard of an exorcism on a witch, but I'll go with that. And But they don't, right? They they go straight to the impaling and, and, the, and the killing of the witch. Well, that backfires because the witch, I, you know, issues a curse. And therefore, I guess maybe that's why the count has to do it proper is to exercise the witch so they can be rid of her once and for all. But if that's the case, if he knew that was necessary, I, I don't know was why didn't they try to resurrect the witch before and resurrect? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't. That was a whole thing, and the whole giving birth made no sense either. So, like, where was Barbara Steele's body? Was it underwater the whole time? And is she, we'll do spoiler alerts on this. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the film, right? I mean, Barbara Steele is seemingly still possessed by the witch. I mean, that's the implication I get at the end of the yeah. movie. So it's safe to say that that the character of Veronica dies in, in the early part of the film. And that what we're seeing is just her bo body that's being used by the witch. Yeah, I mean, which makes no sense. But again, let's go with it. I couldn't get past the fact that this takes place. So the witch gets killed and 200 years have passed. Yet the dunking device is still in the same spot and didn't dissolve or break down after 200 years. They didn't put it in the shed or something. I mean, I, I know. Yeah. It's like, they just leave it in the same spot and like, you know, then we shall go back to our lives. And when Barbara Steele and, and Philip go into the lake with their car and he crawls to shore. He later says that he remembers seeing that 
seesaw there. Did I didn't see it in that scene, did you? Uh, I can't remember. To me, then maybe they're treating it as some mystical mystical apparatus that appears and disappears. I don't know. It's weird. What do you uh, what do you think of the witch's makeup? I thought it was pretty good. It's grotesque. I, I thought it was okay. Which I thought was inter- it was interesting, right? Compared to the other films that we had, had, had seen, I mean, like ever there's a ghost or a, you know, it's always like attractive, right? I mean, Barbara Steele is like in Long Hair of Death. She's she's attractive. Here, like the witch is very much not what you would typically see a witch as like in a horror Hollywood film, for example. It's it's a very horrific creature. I was kind of on the fence. I mean, David Pollock did the the makeup, and this was his one and only film. This did not start off a career for him, or I don't know how old he was or anything about him, but I would assume maybe a friend of Michael Reeves, because that's how Ian Ogilvy got involved in this film, because of the friendship. On one hand, yeah, I, the, the witch was grotesque, and that was good. On another hand, it, uh, it felt just kind of, I don't know, Halloween maskish. Yeah, whatever. I can the, see that. The mouth, I mean, there was no articulation in the mouth, really. I mean, you could tell that it was just kind of a, a mask or an apparatus and it didn't seem very lifelike or practical. It, it, it looked grotesque, but I wish that there would have been a better makeup job done so that, you know, when, when the witch was screaming or hollering or speaking at the beginning, that the lips would actually have moved rather than you could tell it was just kind of makeup or a mask. And so in that regards, it seemed a little cheap. I liked where they were going with it, but yeah, I think it needed a better execution. Let's talk about the climax. This is where you had watched it maybe the night before, but I was watching it and I just started texting you. I, I gave you warning. I, 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 I was giving you heads up. It was like, yeah. oh, it, it's appropriate that you're, you know, like a silent film fan and you love the comedies and everything because the Keystone cops make a appearance in this movie. <laughs> How dare you, sir? You know, belittle the Keystone cops name. Uh, yeah, this, this was uh, a, a bad episode of Benny Hill. I think you were the one that made that comment and, I just, it's stuck in my head now. It's like, you know, you know, kind of thought one of the characters, maybe the count was going to walk up to the witch and he did a little pat on the head. (laughs) So, and they sped up the film. Yes. That's the, that's to me, the cardinal sin in any movie is unless they perfect a way to do it where you can tell they're not speeding it up. You should never do that. You know, if if you're gonna yeah if you're if you're doing for a comedic thing like Benny Hill when you're sure. hearing the music and, and Benny Hill's chasing and everything that's funny yeah, yeah it's intended not in a horror movie that supposedly is is being serious which it has to be serious you've got a you've got a rape scene going on in this movie this is not a comedy I, they say that it's a horror comedy but. There was no way that this film was intended to be a horror comedy. It's listed as a horror comedy because the movie got off track and nobody was railing it in. I think I had read where Michael Reeves did not like the ending, but didn't have time to do it right. It was a rushed production. But ragging on Michael Reeves a little bit here and might ruffle some feathers. But you know what? Roger Corman rushed production on films and never made mistakes uh like that i mean you don't see 
if Roger Corman sets out to make a serious film, if you laugh at it, it's, it may be because of, of bad special effects or bad acting, but you're not laughing because Roger Corman made a mistake and sped up the film and, and brought in the Keystone Cops for a finale. Roger Corman wouldn't have done that. Roger Corman was able to do a lot in, in you know, I look at like the terror with Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson. That went took two, three days to film. And while the plot is confusing at times, Roger Corman does a hell of a lot in that movie and, and with a two to three day shooting time. Hey, we got some sets. We got Karloff around for a few more days. Let's bring Jack in and let's make a movie. And, he, and he, that movie is infinitely better than, than She-Beast. Yeah, the ending is just horrendous. It's just too extreme yeah. you know, to go from seriously effective and terrifying beginning to the slapstick ending there's just no it's too extreme of a swing it needs to find some consistency somewhere in the middle and it doesn't help that that phillips car is like a glorified <laughs> clown car i mean his car i mean someone it's a what it is like a, a vw bug or something like that it's an early version of it or whatever isn't it i think i don't know it just seems so small Especially in that final scene, right? When you well, that's got, the yellow car. So I think wasn't that Van Helsing's car? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's that, the bug into the like. You're right, and you said something about you called it a clown car because how many cops can you put into this teeny little yellow car? Well, yeah, it's like that. You get that. I don't know. There's so many scenes like where <laughs> where you see the cops. And are, are, are walking towards the van and the witch is in the van and, and Philip's got the gun and he's like hiding underneath the truck. And then of course, you know, the witch comes out ah, screaming and stuff and attacks the cops and the cops just are clueless. There's a reason they're working where they are. Yeah. That clown car at the end, you've got Philip and Van Helsing in the front seat. Then you've got like Barbara Steele is obviously like a head taller than them. It's almost like she's sitting on some type of little rumble seat or something. In fact, you get this dramatic reveal in the end, right? Where Barbara Steele says, you know, I will come back, you know, which is what the witch says at the beginning of the movie. But I'm thinking of the whole time is like any dramatic reveal is, is thrown off because you're in a clown car. It's, you know, I don't know. They make a plot point of they're in the police van, the good guys that they stole. And I think Van Helsing realizes, oh, they left the instruments of the exorcism in the yellow car. I don't believe they ever go get them. So that yeah. means they don't have the tools to properly get rid of the witch, which I guess technically could play into that very, very ending. But yet it's just... If only we would have got a sequel that could have <laughs> continued the story proper. I actually would like to see one that's strictly horror and had the same mood of that early scene. Uh, I, I think that there, there's a story here. Absolutely, there's a story. You know, even a modern day take on this would be something I would be interested in that maybe explained the whole witch into the water giving birth to... Veronica, I think there's definitely something here. You know, it's not the worst movie that I've seen. I, I will say that. It's not going to go on my worst movies I've watched this year because I was entertained by this film because it is so off the, off the wall. You had to laugh. And that's where I'm like, if I found something, even if the movie was supposed to be serious and I came across 
thinking, yeah, this movie's a mess, but I oddly found some levels of enjoyment because it's so bad that it doesn't go on my worst movie of, of the year list. I don't know that I'd revisit this movie, but I've got an amazing print of it sitting on my shelf and the box looks all kind of cool. And, and yeah, I like the box. Yeah. Revenge of the Blood Beast. I, I can't recommend it unless you are a Barbara Steele fan and then it needs to be at the bottom or towards the bottom of the list. I think you need to see other Barbara Steele films before you see this one. That said, I'm glad we covered it for the podcast because we're doing a public service. If you haven't seen <laughs> Shubies, you need to know these things going into it. But then again, not knowing it kind of throws you for a loop and, and that element of surprise, we're ruining that for, for people. People yeah. won't get that. It's a fine line you walk between you know public service and being able to express what you think about something. Yes. Anything uh, else to say about it? I, I, I think I've said enough. I'm good. Well, well, let's move on and see what Barbara Steele does with her career after this. Yes, let's, let's do that. She made another movie, An Angel for Satan, in 1966. Uh, again, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but I don't understand the back and forth from different countries because she appeared in an episode of I Spy on NBC in 1966. I want to sit back, back for just a second. Oh, Angel, sure. Angel for Satan. I want to see that movie. I'm interested in that. That's a... Okay. I, I was like doing some research and like hoped that it was going to be on YouTube or whatever. It's not. Hmm. I don't know if Sinister Cinema has a copy of it. I didn't bother to look there, but um, it's not an easy film to find, but it is something I'm interested in. Uh, I, I think because I am interested in seeing some other Barbara Steele films. And there's not a lot in, in this genre that I haven't seen yet. That That's definitely one I want to try to track down. 1968, Curse of the Crimson Altar, also known as the Crimson Cult. You mentioned that earlier. I have never seen that. I bought the fancy, I think it's even a overseas Blu-ray of yes. that. Um, I have the same thing. I have not watched it yet. Derek raving about it, but I have not watched it. But at this point, 1968, Barbara Steele said she was sick of being typecast in horror movies. In fact, she's quoted as saying, I never want to climb out of another freaking coffin again. For a little while, she didn't. She made a, a TV movie, Honeymoon with a Stranger. I'm really curious. That's 1969, and you know I'm doing my series, and I started in 1970. So uh, I might want to backtrack and see if that fits into the genre that I'm doing, but I'd be interested in, in seeing that. About this same time, she married screenwriter James Poe. Interesting in 1969. Now, James Poe was a very accomplished writer, and it's not clear, but from here on out, it's kind of intimated that she needed him for her career. He wrote parts for her. He got her into movies. But there's also this weird phenomenon of Barbara Steele being in scenes that are cut from movies or being in background scenes are very small. For example, they shoot horses, don't they? He wrote a part for her. But for whatever reason, she didn't actually get that part. It went to Susanna York. But James Poe, he actually won an Oscar. He was uh, one of the writers for Around the World in 80 Days. So he had won an Oscar for that. He wrote Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Lilies of the Field. And do you do you know what else? This is your wheelhouse. He was no, a big old-time radio writer. He wrote episodes of Escape and Suspense, including... Oh, I'm so excited. I know something that Richard looks... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that. 
three that Vincent Price were in, including Three Skeleton Key. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's well, very- You may want to verify, but I, I ran across that somewhere. Anyway, he's very accomplished. And, I and uh, you know, they were married for, uh, I guess they got divorced a few years later in 1978. So married nine or 10 years. They did have one son, Jonathan Jackson Poe. He was born August 11th, 1970. This period, she went five years. She didn't make any movies. I, I don't know if it's because she was raising a child or, or, or what, but uh, just didn't really do anything. In 1972, she appeared on an episode of the Night, of Night Gallery, The Sins of the Fathers. And then in the 70s, she did make a return to B-movies and horror movies. Uh, at the age of 37, she was in Caged Heat uh, from 1974. And... I wish I could think of something this clever, but I I did see it. This was a point in Barbara's career where at one point she would have played a beautiful inmate of this prison, but 37 years old, instead she's playing the wheelchair bound warden of the prison. So she's definitely made a change and not so um, down on horror. I mean, she's appears in, in several more horror movies, Shivers, from 1975, Piranha, or I like to say Piranha, from 1978, and Silent Scream from 1979. So let's backtrack a second. You missed something from 75 that is in your wheelhouse. She did a made-for-TV film in 1975 called The Space Watch Murders. What? It was about a crew member being held for the murder of her six shipmates by the inhabitants of a hostile planet. Now, the movie, depending on different sources, one source said that it was broadcast on television only once, January 4th, 1978. Yet, there's a few other sources that indicate that it may have been replayed at a couple of times in the spring of 78, There was a television guide listing for, I think, April 1978 that had it being replayed late night. Um, It was the the Mystery of the Week film series. The movie's lost. It doesn't exist anymore. There's virtually nothing out there on this film. There is no, apparently there's like not even any TV ads that, I mean, obviously there'd have to be something if somebody dug a little deeper, but there's no screenshots or anything. The movie apparently is lost. It might be sitting in a vault somewhere, but it is effectively buried. It gets talked about on a few boards. There's a, a at least one thing on the classic horror film board where they talk about it. There's like one screenshot of an actress in it, but it ends up, someone said, no, look at what she's wearing. This is from another movie. So it's actually not from the Space Watch murders. I got excited when I saw that. I thought, ooh, this TV movie and, and Jeff can cover it. And no, it, it doesn't seem to have resurfaced anywhere. It, like, and it's so not it, in my book, Television Fright Films of the that's 70s. That's interesting, yeah. Referenced. I think it's just, it's fallen off the face of the earth because it's just not, looks like it'd been shown maybe a couple of times and then it just disappeared. It might be in the vault with... London After Midnight? Yes, London After Midnight. But I somehow sense it's not the same quality. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. So, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, um, 
because it popped up on her IMDb and I was curious what this was. And then I was like, yeah, it's like there's virtually nothing out there. Huh, right that totally flew by me. I did not see that. She was in a couple movies that weren't horror. Well, I should say, technically she was in. She was in a movie, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, 1977, but her scenes were cut. She was in Pretty Baby from 1978, but only in a background shot. I think you mentioned Piranha. She's really not that big in that film either. I mean, she she plays a doctor that pops up only in what? couple of scenes, I think, or maybe it's even one scene. And it's kind of a fluke that she was in Silent Scream. Apparently they had shot a good deal of the movie and decided to, in essence, start over. So they brought her in as a new star with Yvonne DiCarlo and Cameron Mitchell. And only 15% of the original production was used. She is in the new footage, I guess. I didn't get the impression any of her footage was cut from that. She kind of took a little retirement from acting for almost a decade. However, she became a, not prolific, she didn't produce a lot, but she did do some producing of movies and TV. She was an executive producer of Winds of War and War and Remembrance in 83 and 88, and in fact won the Emmy when War and Remembrance won for Outstanding Drama Comedy Special, and she shared the stage with Dan Curtis when he made his memorable speech in accepting that award. Probably from this relationship with Dan Curtis, she was in the 1991 revival of Dark Shadows. She played Dr. Julia Hoffman. And I really wanted to say more about that, but I I don't really have anything to say. Well, number one, I haven't revisited that in a long time. Number two, Comparing anyone playing Julia Hoffman to Grayson Hall from the TV series is a thankless task. Very, very different performance. Hard to accept only from the fact that it is so different. Hard really to judge if it was good or not. It's, but I, I think it's probably you like it or you don't. I think it was fine. It, it doesn't stand out to me as a great performance, but nevertheless, it was it gave that show more cred to have a, a horror icon like Barbara Steele in a, a pivotal role like Dr. Hoffman. Did you Have you ever seen any clips of her in that or any of those episodes? I have never seen the 91 uh-huh. version. I have less experience with that version of Dark Shadows yeah. than the original. You know, my interest in the, in the original is like, I would love to see, see it. It's, it's on my long list of things that I'd love to watch someday. I don't know that I've heard enough good about the 91 version that that would be on my, and in knowing that it didn't last very long, well, there's not really an end to it, is there? It's one of those weird series, right? That if this show gets less than a season or a season and there's really not an end to it, there's less reason to try to dive into it than years later, unless it's a curiosity or something you want to see how, you know, like a sci-fi show, like from the seventies, like, you know, Battlestar Galactica or Planet of the Apes or Logan's Run, you know that there's not an end to it, but you can still enjoy the the story of the week. After that, she was relatively quiet. She did come back to produce in 2003. And this just fascinates me. I'm not sure why, but she was an associate producer of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the original (laughs) series. So it's like, where where does that come from? There's got to be a story there. I would love to know what that is. In 2010, she appeared on one of the Dark Shadows audio dramas, The Night Whispers. And then I think I would say 
I don't know if it was an attempt at a comeback, but it was certainly an opportunity for her to return to the screen and, and possibly take her career in a new area as a, an older woman. She was in The Butterfly Room in 2012. I believe if it wasn't the lead role, it was a an important role in that movie, drama, strictly a drama. Well, yeah. I take that back. I don't believe it was. I think it was also horror. Do you know anything about Butterfly Room? I, I don't. I've heard of it, and I heard that it was kind of the start of a kind of a pseudo late career renaissance for her. You know, there's another film, uh, The Mill at Culver's End in 2015, that also gets mentioned from this time period. You know, I don't know that it necessarily, but I think probably because of her age and, and, and the fact that these are lower budget films, it, you know, I think there's a little hype behind it, but I don't necessarily think that it was going to be leading to to a, a full-blown renaissance of her career. I mean, she is, there, she does a voice, right, now of, of the character yeah. Miranda. Castlevania uh, yeah. Netflix animated series. New series, but I mean, so she probably did the voiceover work maybe a year ago, maybe even two, depending on how long the production's been on it. Still, she'd have been, you know, 80, 81, 82 when she was doing it. I think at this point, Barbara Steele is probably only going to be doing voiceover work. I hate to say that. I mean, she could certainly pop up in another film. Um, she was doing some convention appearances for a little while, but I know she was also, she would be promoted and then she'd cancel and then promote and cancel. So I don't know if that was health related or if it was just life popping up or, if, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, she's always had a different approach to the profession as, as we've been talking her career, I mean, there's a roller coaster ride, you know, highs and lows and she's active. She's not active. I was watching a lot of different interviews with her from at different stages. And it, it's interesting. She's not a huge fan of horror films, but she makes that comment about she loves the darkness and, and things like necrophilia and incest are a great arena to work in. That's an interesting quote, you know, but that's that's her take is that she loves it's kind of interesting. She, she's not a huge fan of horror films, but yet that's kind of what she's known for and what and what she's probably the best at, at least from what we've seen. And she loves the darkness and she doesn't like the bubbly Hollywood persona. So uh, I think that's why she's whether she gravitated towards horror or horror kind of lured her to that and what she became known for. Clearly, who she is has a has a there's a darkness to to who she is as a person that's implied in, in in several interviews. So I think that's what she brings forth in her films is that starkness, that dark quality. That there's a a kind of an underlying of sensuality in her in her performance that isn't uh, depending on the film. You know, like I said, the long hair of death. It's it's certainly more pronounced, and there was certainly some of that in She Beast early on that scene in the end where the, the, uh, where Groper is watching was a little intense. There was some emotion going on there that you didn't always see in some of her other quote unquote love scenes. Sometimes I think as she's like, you know, a ghost coming back or as she's with her lovers, I don't know that less convincing in some films than others. I don't know. Interesting approach to the way she, she handled her career. Yeah. I got the impression she sort of came to accept her. Yes. Know, her, role or position in, in horror films. One last movie I want to mention, probably her last significant other than Castlevania, was a 2014 movie called Lost River. This was Ryan Gosling's 
directorial debut. Apparently, it's a drama fantasy thriller that she had a supporting role in. So I'm interested to see both The Butterfly Room and Lost River. I don't know what their availability are, but I'd kind of like to see. I, I really enjoyed this. I didn't know a lot about Barbara Steele before we did this. I didn't know. I knew she made all these Italian movies, but I knew she wasn't Italian. I didn't really know how she got to be there. It's an interesting body of work. She definitely has her her fans. I, I think it's obvious why. And I really enjoyed working on this episode. I did too. This, this was different. As I watched extra films, it was like I said, you know, it was interesting. I, I liked some of the films that we didn't cover more than the ones we did cover. But it was interesting to, to kind of see the, this period. Like I said, I want to see more. I want to see the horrible Dr. Hitchcock. I want to find an angel for Satan. I know that I'll be running across the Night Gallery episode eventually because I've got those box sets on my stack to watch. Yeah, th- this was this was really fun. I think it was interesting to, to take a look at somebody. I, I've heard, you know, at one point people are saying that she deserves a spot on like the horror hall of fame alongside Karloff and Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. I don't know that this journey that I took elevated her status for me personally. I I, I would have a little bit of an issue putting her up alongside a Karloff, a Lugosi, a Price or Cushing, but she certainly earns a spot along there somewhere for what she did for me ruffle some feathers here, but I don't know that I would put her up necessarily as an equal to them. And it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, she's a woman. I think it has to do with the fact that her body of work is, is briefer and doesn't necessarily as consistent or necessarily up to the caliber consistently with some of the others. Well, it's nice also to do an episode where the subject is still with us. Yes, absolutely. To announce a a death date, and maybe I can just close this out before we take a break and say happy birthday to Barbara Steele. Absolutely. Happy birthday. December 29th. We'll be right back. Welcome to New Business. We're first going to look at the handful of horror, classic horror movies that are coming out on home video from uh, about the middle of December to middle of January, a month here, uh, although not a calendar month. 
Not a whole lot. We mentioned last time Curse of Frankenstein, the Warner Archive deluxe two-disc set that's coming out. That's on December 15th. Definitely looking forward to that. I see on Facebook some people getting it. I don't know if those are advanced copies for reviews or what, but I'm really, really eager to get my hands on that. That's about the biggest name thing we've got coming. Uh, On December 8th, we have Seven Women for Satan. That's from 1976. It's a French film from Mondo Macabro. The character in this is called Count Boris Zaroff. So what's that a takeoff of? But I love this tagline. A wild psychedelic nightmare of love, lust, and domination. Wow. It says it all right there. I was going to say, I don't know if this falls in the time frame, because I guess there's not an official release date, but we're supposed to be getting that Paul Nashie film in early January, Panic Beats. Oh, okay. I don't know about that, but Orgy of the Living Dead was the next one I was going to say. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, chime in with that after I say Yeah, that's the Mondo Macabro. They did a pre-order a few weeks back, maybe even, gosh, yeah, a few weeks back now. The release date was early January. There's not an official date. Circa 1980, Nashi film that's a little bit more obscure. And I believe Rod Barnett does the commentary on that one as well. I bought that. Official release date is, I think, just early January. So, And December 15th is Orgy of the Living Dead from 1973. It's also known as The Hanging Woman. Uh, It's a little difficult to find information because there's a movie called Orgy of the Dead. And then, of course, there's the Ed Wood movie. Nashi has a supporting role. Yes, yes. From Full Moon Pictures. And speaking of ordering, that is one that I did order. And I just got a notice from Amazon yesterday that the shipping date has changed and I can expect it any time from December 15th to February 2nd. I don't know what's happening with that. Probably should go direct instead of through Amazon, but yeah. I'm going to get that. I haven't pre-ordered that one yet. So I'm I'm taking the chance that it's not going to be one of those sellouts. I, cause I did the, the panic beats limited edition. I guess that's what's coming out. The regular edition will be coming out later, but I did do the, limited edition and it did sell out like in an hour or something. Mm. I'll have the red box. I don't know if I did that one or not. January 5th, we have Tintorera Killer Shark from 1977. That's Kino Lorber Studio Classics loan uh, genre release in this time period. January 12th, two from Code Red, Just Before Dawn from 1981 with superstar George Kennedy and The Devil's Wedding Night from 1973. Not familiar with that, but the the tag, the description is Lady Dracula uses Dracula's ring to lure beautiful girls to her castle where she murders them so she can bathe in their blood. A little bit of Countess Dracula there, maybe. Interesting, yeah. And then on the 12th from Scorpion is a movie I have seen, Rituals from 1977. This is with Hal Holbrook. It's a Canadian film, and I actually reviewed it when I went around the world for the countdown to Halloween. Liked it enough that I gave it seven stars. Pretty good movie. Have you seen it? You know, I have a copy of it, and this is interesting. I actually have, and this is, I I want to figure out how to make it happen. It would require some editing on my part that might be beyond my technology because I'm I'm just limited (laughs) with my knowledge of editing. I have the bumpers from the Kansas City Fright Night, Friday Fright Night airing of Rituals. Huh. 
you remember Fright Night, right? Yeah. And the, yeah. And the guy, yeah, it's it's all like from the beginning to end is like, you know, back to rituals. And because it goes by another name, I thought. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I have both, actually. So I, I've always said I want to watch the bumpers from Friday Fright Night and kind of recreate the Friday Fright Night feel. Because I used to watch that back in the late '80s when we when I finally moved up to this area in the fall of '87, uh, uh, I watched Friday Fright Night with great regularity that fall because I was living with my sister and just kind of being a hermit for that fall. I had kind of come out of a bad relationship, and Friday nights I was by myself because she worked uh, at a bar. She was a teacher and worked at a bar on Friday nights. Friday nights to me, we're watching Star Trek The Next Generation and Friday Fright Night. And that's where I got my early VHS recordings of Logan's Run and Soylent Green and The Omega Man. They played all of those in that time period. I had those on cassette for so many years and I I got rid of them. I wish I'd have been able to dub them off because I had the Friday Fright Night intros to all of those. But yeah, long gone. Anyway, I, I fondly remember Friday Fright Night. Just a couple birthdays and anniversaries that I'd like to mention. Uh, I don't know if you realize that Barbara Steele was born on December 29th of 1937. What a coincidence. Yes, yes. December 8th, 1861, George Millet. We may have mentioned him in our last month's episode, uh, The Sound of Silence. And then January 7th, 1928, William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist. The Exorcist, which movie version, was released on December 26th, 1973. Harkening back to our very first episode, King Kong was released December 17th, 1976. And coming for a full circle to our previous episode, The Phantom Carriage was released in Sweden on January 1st, 1921. Uh, That reminds me, The Phantom Carriage, I believe, is going to be on Turner Classic Movies the 27th of December, I believe. Mm. Um, I did say that it was coming up in December and that would be on their like Sunday night silence. Um, and so uh, I think, yeah, the, the 20th, they're doing like a Christmas, silent Christmas movie. So the 27th, I'm pretty sure is when Phantom Carriage is on. If you haven't seen it and uh, there's all, you know, you don't have access to any other print, check out Turner Classic Movies on December 27th. Yes, we highly recommended that. That's it for this episode for New Business. What's going on with you, Richard? Anything you want to share with our listeners? Doing a lot of Christmas old-time radio stuff right now. My OTR Wednesdays, which is where I do the film adaptations for radio. There's a lot to choose from for holiday Christmas theme movies like Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life. Christmas in Connecticut. Yeah, those are going to be featured on Wednesdays. And then I'm throwing in for fun some links to stuff like some of the OTR Christmas comedy uh, shows, uh, Christmas-themed episodes of like Fibber McGee and Molly and and Jack Benny, who were also film stars. So that's kind of how I'm kind of pulling in that theme connection with, with films, movie stars who were on radio. Yeah, a lot of holiday stuff. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of taking a look at my list real quick here. If I had anything non-holiday planned, uh, probably the closest to genre would be A Christmas Carol. I'm always going to throw up my 1939 airing of uh, A Christmas Carol with Lionel Barrymore and Orson Welles. 
that'll be probably the closest I get to anything that's not strictly comedy or, you know, sappy with Christmas stuff. Christmas, I, I tend to put horror and sci-fi on the back burner and I just immerse myself in sappy Christmas movies and Christmas music and I, I overdose on it. And then on the 26th, then I kind of, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm done. You know, let's, let's dive into something different and back to the other stuff. That's really what I'm doing mostly uh, for the next month. Same for me, running with the regular features Monday, uh, a movie, Wednesday, DC Comics guy, getting close to the end of Freedom Fighters, deciding what to go with next. And then on Friday, still the TV Terror Guide, still in 1972. I do want to mention that the latest book from the We Belong Dead group is coming out, Giant Monsters of Filmland. I have a couple of features in that. Just hint of what's to come. They are next doing a volume called Masters of Terror, which is more about uh, directors and writers and people uh, versus movies. Goodness, I'm glad to see that he's going to continue doing it. For a while, it looked yeah. like he was going to stop. So. Yeah, and the magazine's on a regular schedule yeah. now. Yeah, so they're cranking the magazine out with great regularity. I know, and that I don't know when they've done that. Um, I have perhaps been overlooked being asked to participate in those. I don't but know. But you're in the book, but you're in... Yeah, you said, yeah. Are you going yeah. to be in the Masters of Terror book? I am. I am doing James Whale, Kurt Siodmak, and Dan Curtis. That's why you asked me the Kurt Siodmak question the other day. I did, I did. Yeah. And if anyone out there knows a resource for just the bonus features on home video, I would like to be directed to that source. I suppose I could look at my DVDs. I mean, maybe the Wolfman has a short on Kurt Siodmak or something, but it'd just be nice to, to, to look and say, oh, I can go to this movie and I can get a documentary or a short about there has to be some some yeah. side out, and I, you know, I did start to look, but I was on my phone, and it uh, it was hard to kind of really. Yeah. maybe that's something I can do today. Well, congrats on on continuing Thanks. to add to the. Uh, I'm going to have to have a section soon. The the Jeff Owens section in my library. Wow, wow. that's that's no, that's awesome though. That's 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 uh, those books are amazing. Sometimes get out of print rather quickly. Man, they're nice productions. They're they're worth the money, and and they look. Beautiful, well put together, and you know what? Centuries from now, people will be reading the the works of Jeff. Yeah, Owen. I'm sure. I'm sure that's what they'll be reading. Before we talk about next time, you know, it is the holiday season. We alluded to that. I think we're going to drop a special surprise holiday gift uh, next week. You know, a couple couple years ago, we 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 did that. We couldn't pull it off last year because somebody had to move to Minnesota. <laughs> Yeah, we've got something fun lined up. We're not going to tell you what it is. But we're hoping it'll drop on the 21st. So you'll have uh, plenty of time to listen to it uh, in the days leading up to Christmas and maybe inspire some Christmas viewing. I will drop this uh, hint. Kind of a different level than uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians <laughs> or Santa Claus. Uh, yes. we're, we're raising the bar on this one, folks. You know, this is funny. Last night, just perusing late night channel lineup and getting ready for bed and Comet was playing uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martian. And I had to stop there and, and Carla was like, oh, dear God. And, and I said, well, hey, look what's coming up, uh, you know, following. I, I don't think it was that channel, but it was another channel was doing, as they had it listed, Santa Claus versus the devil, the Spanish Santa Claus movie. And I and she hasn't seen that yet. And I said, you know, that is better than Santa Claus Conquers the Martian. 
<laughs> I like Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I do. We talked it, about that. I enjoy that. It, it's it's fun. It, it's a quirky, quirky film. But then uh, what's our proper episode for January? What are we going to be covering so people can do their homework and watch ahead of time? We can hope that 2021 is not as apocalyptic as 2020 was, but we're going to start off with some interesting themes the first couple of months. Post-apocalypse and disasters is what we're going to be covering in January. We're going to go back to the 70s and, and take a look and see what Gene Roddenberry was doing after Star Trek. He was trying to, to get something going, and it just never quite happened. He did two of the three films that are going to be covered, but they're all three connected. Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and Strange New World. These are all three films centering on the first two of the character, Dylan Hunt, and then they changed the name in the third one. Roddenberry wasn't involved in that, but it's essentially the same idea. Basically, man gets suspended and wakes up and the world has changed and there's been like an apocalypse. And that sounds familiar. It's because these movies, while they didn't make a series, got eventually turned into a series in the 90s called Andromeda with Kevin Sorbo. We're going to take a look at that trilogy of films. And yes, we got John Saxon in two of the three films, which uh, should be exciting in itself because I love John Saxon. One of these I've seen numerous times over the years, but I haven't seen the other two in uh, quite a few years. So I'm looking forward to this revisit for me. Genesis 2 and Planet Earth are on a two-film collection on Blu-ray from Warner Archive, only $17.99 for both of those. I need to ask you, how am I going to watch Strange New World? It's from Warner Archive on DVD. Okay. Great. I wish they would have included it in, in just one big set. Uh, and they could have because these are made-for-TV movies that are only 75 minutes. They could have easily fit in uh, a third film, I would think, you know, or add a second disc. It's available. They're not perfect, but they're fun. And I think it'll be a fun way to start off 2021. Yes, and Strange New World is available from Amazon. It's on sale from $12.99 to $11.89. So get that bargain while you can. <laughs> okay, so that's it. And uh, let's remind people how to get hold of us so that we can have some feedback for old business next time. And that would be, you can call 616-649-2582. You can email classichorrors.club at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group page. You can send carrier pigeon and smoke signals. Ha ha, that never gets old, does it? <laughs> while you're thinking of us, while we're on your mind, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Help us get exposed to more listeners that is, of course, if you enjoy what you're hearing. Why wouldn't they? Come on. Yes, yes that's assumed. We're going to go out on another song called Barbara Steele. This is just an instrumental, so no uh, rockabilly tones here. It's from a uh, group called Morkstein. Morkstein. It's from the 2011 album, I love this title, Epilogue of a Tragic Existence. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, and that's cool available title. on Apple Music. Until next time, everyone take care. Happy holidays. We'll see you. Take care and stay safe, everyone. <laughs>